Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. In February of 1996, the Kansas University debate team sponsored a debate on the existence of God. The lecture hall was packed out with 850 students in attendance uh, to hear Pastor Alan Shelby debate with Dr. Gordon Stein. Now, Dr. Stein was one of America's foremost scholars of atheism. He served as the editor of the secular humanist journal, The American Rationalist. He was also the librarian of the Center for Inquiry, and Dr. Stein had written seven books on atheist history and philosophy, including a well-known pamphlet, How to Argue with a Theist and Win. At the time, Pastor Alan Shelby, now Dean of the Living Faith Bible Institute, was serving as the college and young adult pastor at Kansas City Baptist Temple. Uh, This week on The Postscript, we have the privilege of sharing with you a remastered recording of this 1996 debate. The debate will begin with two 20-minute opening statements from both men, uh, then two 10-minute rebuttals. And then they'll take five minutes for closing statements. And so you'll hear all that. At the end, there'll be questions that students were asking. And so there'll be a little Q&A at the end. And so the idea is that that you would get to hear this episode for the first time and enjoy it for what it is. Uh, Dr. Alan Shelby does a wonderful job of laying out the evidences for God. And so with all that, we pray that you would enjoy this episode. We're calling it The Great Debate, debate between Dr. Alan Shelby and Dr. Gordon Stein. Enjoy. So without further ado, we'll begin tonight's debate with an opening statement in defense of God by the Reverend W. Allen Shelby. Now, since uh, the debate format is stipulated by Dr. Stein, I get the opportunity to go first. So I want to make some introductory remarks and uh, kind of set the, the course of some things that I'd like to discuss this evening. I want to start off with my purposes for the debate. I want you to know that I am not arguing for theism in general tonight, but I'm arguing for the God of the Bible. Now, I have three reasons for that. Number one, I don't want this debate to degenerate into a discussion by talking heads. You know how that is. Uh, Where we are just talking to ourselves and nobody else can understand it. My goal is to keep the debate focused in such a way that the arguments presented here have a relevance to the common person. Number two... The concepts of deity found in the various world religions are logically incoherent, and I already grant that, so I'm not here to defend those. Number three, if a position is not rooted in the truth of the Bible, I do not believe that it's logically defensible. So my goal tonight is not to defend religion uh, in the negative context in which most of us, including Dr. Stein, might understand it. If a religious position is not based upon the objective standard of the Bible as the Word of God, it either falls into the trap of being in internally incoherent, or it's not consistent with human reason and experience. So, I'm not arguing for theism in general tonight, but for the God of the Bible. The nature of the debate this evening is a free and open inquiry into the existence of God. We are not here to debate the people who adhere to or profess these systems. Now, there are three reasons for that as well. Number one, the personalities of the people who claim a certain system or thought are not relevant to the truth or falsehood of those systems. Both atheists and Christians can equally be emotional or uh, unlearned or intolerant or rude. Number two, subjective claims are made about the experience of inner satisfaction by both atheists and Christians. And these sort of things are autobiographical, but they don't really tell us anything about the system under discussion. 
Number three, the issue is not if atheists or Christians have ever done anything undesirable or morally unacceptable. You may know someone who professes belief in Christ who lives hypocritically. You may know a pastor who lives immorally or something like that. But the issue is whether atheism as a philosophy is true, given the objective evidence, as compared to a belief in the God of the Bible. So, since I get to start off the debate, let me uh, first... Uh, stipulate some definitions, offer some definitions to guide our discussions. First, a definition of atheism. Classical atheists are affirmed in their position. Classical atheists are affirmed in their position. Now, to use a very common reference, Webster's New World Dictionary, third college edition, it says atheism is the belief that there is no God or a denial that God exists. An atheist is a person who believe that, believes that there is no God. As a matter of fact, the word atheist is theos, the Greek word for God, with an A or the negative in front of it, contradicting it. So Webster goes on to define the relationships this way. An atheist rejects all religious belief and denies the existence of God. An agnostic questions the existence of God and the absence of material proof. Since I have the affirmative in tonight's debate, Dr. Stein must have the negative. But for logical reasons, you cannot prove God's non-existence. Therefore, atheists have recreated themselves in the image of someone who is not saying that God does not exist. They are just saying that God has not given them sufficient proof. Look for that tonight. But that is an agnostic position. Now, in the Latin, the word agnostic is the equivalent of ignoramus. Dr. Stein calls himself an atheist while he clings to an agnostic position, at least during a debate, because he doesn't want to be an ignoramus, but he doesn't want to lose this debate either. So we must not let Dr. Stein oversimplify the matter by saying that God does not exist just because he has not given him enough evidence to believe in his existence. Why is this definition of atheism so important to our debate? It's important because I want you to know something. It is possible for you to set your case a priori so that you end up with the results that you want to get. It's possible for you to set your case up in such a way that you get the results that you want, and that's exactly what Dr. Stein will do tonight. You know, maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you wouldn't say that you're a Christian, but you're, a, you're an intelligent person and you've examined at least some of the arguments. But would you want to be automatically by that defined as an atheist? I don't think that you would. I think you would probably resent the implications of that definition of atheism because it puts you by default into a camp that you have made no commitment to. Now let me go for a second definition, and this is one that I believe that maybe both of us can't accept. God is a supreme personal being distinct from the world and creator of the world. God. A supreme personal being distinct from the world and creator of the world. Tonight I will prove his existence both logically and scientifically. There is logical and there is natural evidence for God's existence and I will give you both. Let's start off with the logical proofs for God. You should write these things down because I'm going to give you eight logical pointers for God that you should not miss in your life. Number one. Logic demands a cause for every effect. Number one, logic demands a cause for every effect. Now this isn't rocket science. This is just common sense here. Logic demands a cause for every effect. 
from the scientific standpoint, no one has yet observed an exception to that. Logic demands a cause for every effect. Number two, because the universe exists, it scientifically demands a very great cause. Because the universe exists, it scientifically demands a very great cause. Now, let me show you how uh, uh, this issue can be so uh, subverted and turned around. Bertrand Russell was a prominent philosopher in the 20th century, but he had very decrepit arguments, I think, when it came against the existence of God. He says, if everything must have a cause, then God must have a cause. If there can be anything without a cause, it may just as well be the world as God. Now, no man living on this side of the scientific discoveries in the last 15 years could make that statement. Uh, I say that logically, something cannot come from nothing. Dr. Stein will object and say, but now hold it, God came from nothing, and that's a logical fallacy. You can't say something came from nothing, uh, something can, nothing, something cannot come from nothing, and they still say that God came from nothing. Now listen to me very carefully so you do not accept Russell and Stein's misrepresentation of my position. I did not say that God came from nothing. I say exactly what the Bible says, that there never was a time before God when there was nothing. There never was time before God when there was nothing. When I answer that a limitless being outside of time and space caused the universe, I am not only answering the question more directly than Dr. Steinwell, but I'm also giving the necessary logical answer, because nothing that is already a part of the universe could logically have created it. And we know from science that the universe had a beginning. The fact that we time-bound creatures cannot picture with our minds how a creator can live outside of a time-space continuum does not remove our need for him. So while events still require a cause, events that take place in time, it is not logical to require a cause for an entity which stands outside of time. It is logical to require a cause for an expanding universe. Number three. The first cause must be independent of its effects. The first cause must be independent of its effects. Purposeless infinity could never have caused the purposeful, super-intelligent design found in the universe or found in nature or even found in your own body. If the universe had a beginning as science demands, and if that beginning had to have a beginner as logic demands, then the beginner had to be separate from what he had begun. The universe was an outside job. Now, the case is already proven at point three, but I'll go on more quickly with some of these other logical pointers to get to some of the natural evidence I want to give you. Number four, the first cause must be infinitely powerful, or what we say omnipotent. The first cause must be infinitely powerful. All right, think through this with me. If there was a cause to the universe, as logic and science both demand, and if that cause has to be greater than the effect that it produced, then not only must that cause be greater in power than, the, than uh, anything in the, use that, the universe that it produced, but it must be greater than the sum of all things in the universe combined. Now think about that a second. Let that soak in. That makes the miracles of the Bible pretty small potatoes. Number five. Number four, the first cause must be infinitely powerful, omnipotent. Number five. 
5, the first cause must be eternal. That is, transcendent of time. The first cause must be eternal, or transcendent of time. And Dr. Stein will say, well, even if God existed before the universe, he must have done some acts, and if he acted, then there must have been time. No, now listen to me. All of those objections are answered by the Bible's definition of God. The Bible says that God the Father, in his essence, God is spirit. And this is something that is logically predicted from our sixth pointer. Number five, the first cause must be eternal, that's transcendent of time. And number six, the first cause must be spiritual, that is transcendent of space. The first cause must be spiritual, or transcendent of space. Logically, only an entity outside of our material universe could have created it. He may interact with the other three dimensions of our space and time continuum, but he himself must be beyond them. The first cause must be infinitely powerful, omnipotent, number seven. The first cause must be all-knowing, omniscient. The first cause must be all-knowing, omniscient. Albert Einstein said, The harmony of natural law reveals an intelligence of such superiority that compared with it, all of the systematic thinking and acting of human beings is an utterly insignificant reflection. The harmony of natural law reveals an intelligence. Einstein recognized what Dr. Stein has failed to accept. The order of the natural laws as a pointer to an intelligence which stands outside of them. Now the problem for Dr. Stein is that God has done his job too well. God has done his job too good. Because he has done his job so well, Dr. Stein's contention will be that the order of the natural laws of science and of nature and of logic are all self-verifying. That they all stand in and of they exist with predictable consistency because they simply are. No creator implied, no creator intended, no creator pointed to. You know what? I want you to listen to this. That is circular reasoning. That begs the question. Why is, a, why is it a law? Well, it's a law because we observe it. Well, why do we observe it then? Well, because it's a law. It's circular reasoning. You have begged the question. Finally, number eight. The first cause must have had personhood. Okay? The first cause must be eternal, transcendent of time. The first cause must be spiritual, transcendent of space. The first cause must be infinitely powerful, omnipotent. It must be independent of its effects. Number eight, the first cause must have personhood. He must be something more. God must be something more than an amphorous blob or a purposeless blob out in the universe. That is where other religions fail. Buddhism, for example, can never harmonize with our scientific discoveries in the universe because Buddhism is atheism with ethics. There is no personal God in Buddhism, despite the fact that there is a purposeful universe in existence. Stephen Hawking describes how the values of the many fundamental numbers in nature's law all line up in a certain way. Stephen Hawking is the astrophysicist at Cambridge that uh, wrote the book on uh, a brief uh, uh, history of, uh, of the cosmos, brief history of time. He says that these um, values of the many fundamental numbers in nature's law, quote, seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life, unquote. And how the initial configuration of the universe appears to have been, quote, very carefully chosen, unquote. Now, listen to me. Carefully choosing and finally adjusting are acts of the will. 
But what we meet in the telescope is a universe whose tremendous design shows us a purpose and a will, and this is recognized by the astrophysicists themselves. In order to have a purpose and a will, you have to have a person. You see, this answers astronomer Fred Hoyle's unanswerable question. He's uh, uh, Sir Fred Hoyle uh, uh, from Great Britain. In one of his books says, quote, What we cannot understand is that God who has no need of the world should have reason to create it, unquote. Well, that's only a problem if you rob God of his personhood. From the Bible's definition of God, he has no needs and yet he has desires. There was no need to create the universe to sustain his existence, but it pleased him to do so. Now that's the logical side. Let me also give you three main pointers of natural evidence proving God's existence. Natural evidence which also proves God's existence. Three main lines of evidence that all come together and converge if you are a scientific thinking person. Number one, the second law of thermodynamics. Second law of thermodynamics tells us that the contents of our universe are becoming less ordered and more random with time. Well, in other words, left to themselves, things become disorganized, things run down, things wear out. Energy cannot be destroyed, but it does degrade. Entropy, or the amount of disorder in a system, never decreases. It always increases. So the universe is wearing down. Now, how is this proof of the existence of God? I want you to listen to the conclusion to a textbook used right here on the KU campus. The Introduction to Thermodynamics, Classical and Statistical by Richard E. Sontag and Gordon J. Van Wylen. You, have, you guys have to pay $66 for it down in the bookstore. Introduction to Thermodynamics, Classical and Statistical. Quote, the final point to be made is that the second law of thermodynamics and the principle of the increase of entropy have philosophical implications. We see the second law of thermodynamics as a description of the prior and continuing work of a creator who also holds the answer to our future destiny and that of the universe, unquote. So science points us to an inescapable fact. The universe cannot be eternal because it, can, it cannot have been dissipating forever. And working backwards, this second law points us not only to a beginning, but to a highly ordered beginning. 2,500 years before the birth of modern science, the writers of the Bible were in full agreement with this second law and the fact that the universe is wearing out, as seen in Psalm 102, verses 25 and 26, Isaiah 51, verse 6. So the second law is a pointer to the truth that the universe could not have begun itself. The only scientific position is that the universe was created by an entity from outside and above natural law. Number two, the second scientific pointer, the second natural pointer to the existence of God is Einstein's general theory of relativity. Now, the equations require a level of mathematics that few of us possess. For the purpose of our debate, I will just have you note this. The equations of general relativity show that the universe cannot be static, it has to either be expanding or contracting. So after this, Einstein wrote not only of the necessity for an intelligence, but also of his desire, quote, to know how God created this world. I am not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element, I want to know his thought, the rest are details, unquote. The third of the three main pointers to a worldwide web of natural evidence for God's existence is astronomical observations. 
Number three, the scientific consensus today, and I don't know if Dr. Stein is enlightened enough to put himself in this group or not, is that the expansion points back inescapably to a time when all the bodies in the universe had a common origin in space and time. And you can't have an origin without an originator. Nobel Prize winning uh, physicist Arno Penzias says the easiest way to fit the observations with the least number of parameters was one in which the universe was created out of nothing in an instant and continues to expand. So what we find, the simplest theory, the one that astronomers normally espouse, is a creation out of nothing, the appearance out of nothing of a universe. Robert Wilson was the other physicist, physicist that shared the Nobel Prize with him. He said, I can't think of a better theory of the origin of the universe to match with Genesis. I wonder if Dr. Stein can. And I wonder if Dr. Stein will admit, based upon logic, reason, and the fact that creation could, could not have happened without a creator, that God does exist, or if he will just say that, well, there are some other scientists that disagree. Listen, you can't have an origin without an originator. It's not logical. Cosmic background microwave waiting radiation is now scientific fact irreconcilable with anything other than a creation event involving the entire universe. Um, George Smoot, the head of the Kobe team, which found this radiation, says, quote, there is no doubt that a parallel exists between the Big Bang as an event and the Christian notion of creation from nothing, unquote. Robert Jastra, the founder of NASA's Goddard Institute and now head of the Mount Wilson Observatory, writes about that observation this way. And he's talking about the Hubble Law. It's one of the greatest discoveries in science. It's one of the main supports of the scientific story of Genesis. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis is the same. The chain of events leading to a man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. And that's even though Jastrow himself is a proclaimed, self-proclaimed agnostic. So we have the evidence tonight both logically and naturally from science itself. It's good to see so many of you interested in this question. It is, after all, the most fundamental question in all of religion, and possibly in all of life. If uh, there is no God, then of course the Bible can't be the Word of God, Jesus can't be the Son of God, uh, all the other religions that are theistically based have no, nothing to stand on. So this is really the fundamental issue, and that's why I choose this particular topic to debate about, because all the others are secondary in relation to this. Now, uh, it would sound like from Reverend Shelby's uh, speech that uh, he knows exactly what I'm going to say and therefore I don't even have to say anything. Unfortunately, it's about 180 degrees wrong about it. everything that I'm going to say. So take what I'm going to say from me and not from him. He also is a pretty lousy cosmologist. I would take my cosmology from him as I will explain in a minute. Um, my cosmology, I mean the origin of the universe. Now, first of all, the definition of atheist that he gave came from Webster's Dictionary. Where does the dictionary get the definitions? Its definitions from. It picks them up from people who speak publicly or write publicly about something. Now, who in the past has spoken uh, and written openly about atheism? One group of people, clergymen. And are they friendly to atheism? Are they going to give you a real, honest attempt to read the atheist literature and give you an evaluation of what the atheists really say? No. Instead, they're going to set up a straw man and knock them down. That's exactly what they've done. That's the clergyman's definition of atheism that's in the dictionary. If you ever read the atheist literature, which I have done extensively, you will see that atheists do not hold that position, the definition of the dictionary. Now, gradually, the diction newer dictionaries are picking up the atheist definition, because atheists are speaking more openly about it. An atheist is someone, this is the atheist definition now, they ought to know what they stand for, right? An atheist is someone who has 
Examine the evidence for the existence of God and is without a belief in a God or gods because he or she does not find the evidence convincing. Now, what's an agnostic then? Oh, one other thing. The reason you can see that this is the correct definition even goes back to the etymology of the word. Contrary to what Reverend Sheldon said, the A in Greek means without. It does not mean no. And the reason you can see this very clearly is what is an amoral person? Is it a person with, with no morals? No, it's a person without morals. It's not, it's not a non, sorry, let's say that right. It's not a non-moral person. It is a person without morals. That's an amoral person. And, you, and the same A, which is called primitive in Greek, is, is means without. So a person who is an atheist is without theism, which is exactly what I just said. It's a person who is without belief in God, theism, belief in God. So, now we've got the definition straight, and what is an agnostic? A again, without, Gnosticism, Gnosticism means knowledge. Agnosticism, as coined by Huxley originally in 1869, meant something entirely different from the way we use it today. He meant, his, his definition of it is, Take reason as far as it can go and go no further. That is an agnostic. The person who does that. So in other words, we call that a rationalist today. Someone who believes in reason and going only as far as the reason will take him and then no further. And then you say, I don't know past that point. That's the Gnostic part, the knowledge without knowledge. So basically, an agnostic is a, is agnosticism is a position without knowledge. It says, I do not have the knowledge about God. Now, Herbert Spencer modified this somewhat and said, made it to say, that the knowledge is impossible to ever obtain, theoretically. So it is a person who is without a belief in God because, yeah, Spencer read definition now, uh, because it is impossible to ever have this knowledge, ever get this knowledge. So in, in effect, an agnostic is a person without a belief in God, but a person who has a reason, a different reason, for not having a belief in God, namely that they think that they cannot or do not or can never get this knowledge. So we call atheists, look at agnostics as a subtype of atheists. It's an atheist who thinks that there's no way of ever finding out about God, but is without a belief in God, and therefore is an atheist. I'm not weaseling out of his definition. I agree, you can't prove the non-existence of something, but I don't have to prove the non-existence of something. The burden of proof is always upon the person who says that something is so. If I say there's a little green man sitting on her shoulder, it's not up to me to show that there isn't a little green man, it's up to her to show that there is a little green man. We normally make the burden of proof on the person who says that something is so. So I want to hear some arguments. If the arguments are convincing, I'll accept them. If they're not convincing, I won't accept them. My position is simply that you have to show me convincing arguments. Now, we almost got into something that was very seriously wrong here, and unfortunately he didn't quite go that far, namely the Bible. He wants the definition of the Bible God. Okay, that could be a model for God. It cannot be a proof for the existence of God. Why can't you use the Bible as a proof for the existence of God? Well, the Bible is only a useful tool if it is the Word of God. If it's the Word of God, fine, we'll use it as evidence. But in order for it to be the Word of God, you must show that there's a God first. So nobody's got the cart before, almost got the cart before the horse. He tries to use the Bible as justification. He can use it as a model for his God if he wants. But unfortunately, he has picked a model that's self-contradictory, and therefore cannot exist. I'll get to that in a minute. Here's the point. First, you have to show by using something other than the Bible that God exists. Then you can see if the Bible is the Word of God. If you can show that, then you can use the contents of the Bible to document your case. That's perfectly reasonable. But you have to go in logical steps. You kind of start with the Bible. Now, if you want to start with it as a model of God, <clears throat> you get into big trouble. Because as I agree with uh, Reverend Shelby, you have an omniscient, omnipotent, and, and uh, 
omnibenevolent didn't say, but that's all good. God, these three models, these three qualities cannot exist in the same being, no matter who the being is. Why? Well, this gets a little complicated. I ask you for a little indulgence here. <clears throat> if someone is, om is omniscient, some being is omniscient, I'm talking about humans now, then they know the past, the present, and the future. That's what omniscient means. If they know the future, then the future becomes fixed. Now, why does it become fixed? It becomes fixed only because this God is never wrong. It never lies. It's not a human being now. A human being might be able to predict the future and be wrong. It might try to predict the future and be wrong. But a God who's omnipotent and omniscient cannot be wrong. Now, if he knows the future, it becomes fixed. I'll give you an example of why this cannot be. If God knows that I'm going to be in Paris on February the 10th, on February the 9th, I'm in London. I must, therefore, go to Paris. Is that right? Otherwise, God would be wrong. If I, this involves a free will thing too. If I, if I must go to Paris, then I have no free will. I must do that. I cannot stop. I cannot go somewhere else. Human beings have lost their free will. If human beings have lost their free will, then everything is fixed. All things are predicted. You cannot be converted to Christianity because if you were going to become converted, you would be converted. The future is already known. It's already fixed. You have no free will. The entire case for Christianity disappears, collapses into complete chaos if human beings have no free will. And they cannot have any free will if God is omniscient and omnipotent. Now this is a side issue. I'm just trying to show you his model is wrong. So even using the model of the Bible, from the Bible, gets you nowhere. But let's go back to some of the fundamental arguments outside of the Bible, which are more important. He has misstated some of them. Let's take the, the simple, the two most important ones, the design argument and the, cosmo the cosmological argument, right? Uh, also call the um, first cause argument. I'm going to read you a definition that has to do with cause and effect. Remember we talked about effects must have a cause. Okay. Every effect must have a cause. Now this is critical the way this is worded. Every effect must have a cause. Therefore the universe had a cause and that cause was God. God was the first or uncaused cause. This is the, way, the correct way of stating the cosmological argument. Now what's the trouble with this? Well, if every effect must have a cause, must have had a cause, then God must have had a cause. Remember, we said every effect. We didn't say every effect except God. We said every effect. Okay? If God had a cause, then he was not the first or uncaused cause. Uncaused means no cause. If God did not have a cause, then not every effect must have a cause. We just have an exception here. God. If not every effect needs a cause, then perhaps the universe is one of those things which also does not need a cause. Now, if you say the universe sprang into existence at some point, then it becomes more likely that it had a cause. But he is misstating the entire Big Bang argument. Here's where I said he was a lousy cosmologist. All the Big Bang says is that at some point in the past, the universe started as a single, what's called a... Uh, Singularity, it's called. A single event from a single spot, the universe burst forth. Now, it does not say what happened before that, and it does not say what happened at the end of that cycle. We know the universe is expanding. That does not mean that we are looking at the only time this ever happened. 
In fact, we know that if like an explosion or a bullet you shoot into the air, it goes forward and out, eventually it loses its, its momentum and it falls to the ground. In the case of a universe expanding, it would start falling back in. And what would happen if this universe then collapsed back into a single mass? It would wipe out, of course, all the past history of this universe. It would all be down back to one little event again, a little ball, if you want to call it that, of matter, very densely packed matter. And then it would again explode. So what I'm saying is that a, an alternative and growing feeling among cosmologists at present is that the Big Bang may be a series of Big Bangs. One, expansion out, falling back in, expansion back out again. And this may have gone on for eternity. In other words, the idea that un, 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 uh, an eternal universe is not dead. It is very much alive and coming back again in cosmological thinking. So if God is eternal, and that's the reason he doesn't need a cause, we're not even sure that there is a God, we know the universe exists, that we're sure of. So why is it not possible that the universe is eternal? And in fact, I would hold that the universe is eternal in spite of the expansion and contraction, which is not like that possibility out at all. Um, okay. Now, um, let's, let's go on to the idea of... Uh, I covered a lot of the stuff that I was going to cover, actually, than I thought I was going to cover. Okay, the, the personality, the idea of personality in the first cause, the idea of an infinitely powerful first cause, the idea of an independent of its effects first cause, all depend on there having to be a first cause. As I said before, some events may be uncaused in the sense that they're eternal. And if they're eternal, such as the universe, maybe, such as God, he claims, or the universe, then we do not have a cause, and therefore all of these requirements for a first cause are moot. They're not relevant, because we haven't got a first cause problem in the first place. Okay, now, I'm going to give you one more... Uh, we talked about one proof, that was the cosmological. I'm going to give you two more proofs that are often used. Now, I just want you to get the flavor of these. They're covered in philosophy classes, but I'm sure a lot of people never really uh, take philosophy or ever thought about this. Here's what's called the design argument. The universe is wonderful and exhibits, exhibits evidence of design or order. Things which show such wonderful design must have had a designer even more wonderful. That designer was God. Okay, here's the problem with this. If the universe is wonderfully designed, then surely God is even more wonderfully designed. He must therefore have had a designer even more wonderful than he is. If God did not require a designer, then there's no reason why such a relatively less wonderful thing as the universe needed one. So if you want to have your cake and eat it too, you can't with this. If you're saying that wonderfulness requires design, then that holds for God too. If God is so wonderfully designed, he must, I mean, most so wonderful, he must have had a designer even more wonderful. Now if you're going to postulate a series of gods, one creating the other, creating the other, each one more wonderful, then this will work up to a point, because eventually you're going to come to an infinite regress. You're going to have to do something there with the last God, the master God, if there is such a thing. Okay, um, that's the problem with the design argument. Now I'm going to cover one more, which is called Pascal's Wager. And this one is very popular. It's not really a, a proof of the existence of God, but it's such a popular argument. This is what it says. It says, if you believe in a God, and there is one, then you'll be right, and you'll, you'll receive eternal reward, or heaven, or whatever you want to call it. If you do not believe in a God and there is one, then you're in big trouble, because you'll go to hell. 
if you do not believe in a God, sorry, if you believe in a God and there isn't one, then it doesn't matter because nothing's going to happen. So you're much safer believing in a God. Now there's a big, major, major problem with this. Here's the problem. Each religion says it is the true religion. Now, what happens if you believe in a God and you get to the day, judgment day, and you, you, God, uh, meet, you meet with God, and he says, did you believe in me? And you say, yes, I did. And he said, what religion are you? Were you? And you say, I was a Catholic. And he says, sorry, Islam is the true religion. Down you go. So in other words, you must also pick the right religion as well as picking the right God, picking the, the pro or the con of God, and in addition to maybe other things like leading a good life or whatever the other criteria are. Now we're also making the assumption that this God is a rational God. Maybe he isn't. Maybe he will look at you and you say, uh, yes, I believe in you, yes, I was Islamic, and these are the two right answers, let's say, in this case. And he said, I don't like your face. Down you go. So in other words, you're assuming that he's going to judge you on only those two criteria, or the three criteria, whatever they are. We have no proof of that, no reason to believe that in the first place. So Pascal's wager now becomes a very bad wager. You, and in addition, there's another problem. If It's incorrect to say that if you do not believe in a God, and there is no God, sorry, if you do believe in a God, and there is no God, nothing will happen to you, then you're still coming out ahead. You've wasted a lot of time in your life praying, doing things, not taking responsibility, doing things that you might have used to improve your happiness or the world's happiness or something else. So to say that, you know, that there's no uh, bad effects from being religious is ridiculous. There are some. I'm not saying that, that this is enough to uh, rule it out. I'm saying that there, you have to consider that as a possibility, too, that there are some bad things that will happen. You just have a lot of time in your life doing these things for no avail, either, to no avail. So, Pascal's wager becomes a very poor bet. I only bring this up because it's a very popular argument, and it's, most people don't understand that it isn't, it isn't a good wager. Um, okay, let's see. Why, what is the evidence, or why should a, an atheist say that God does not exist, or what side evidence is there, other than the fact that the theist has not proven his case? What is there that we could use as some kind of evidence that maybe if God doesn't exist? Obviously, you can't prove a negative. We know that. Okay, there's been 1,000 years, at least, since St. Anselm, attempts at proving the existence of God, and they've all logical about. They've all failed. Doesn't this tell us something? Maybe it can't be done. It's not stupid people that have been trying. Okay? Then there's the existence of evil. What does this mean? We have an, an omnibenevolent and all-good God, yet evil exists. Okay? I mean, we don't we deny that evil exists. The answer, according to the Christian, is that God wants man to have free will. Man is supposed to choose between the good and the evil. Well, there's a problem. I just showed you that his model of God, with the omniscience and omnipotence, does not allow for free will. So, you, and you can't have it both ways. Either your model is wrong, or man doesn't have free will. One or the other. Can't have both. And the theologians have batted this around over and over again. I've read almost everything they've ever written on it. It is no solution to this problem. You cannot say that free will removes the problem of evil. It doesn't. There's still a logical problem. If you have an all-powerful, all-good God, you either have to give that up, now, if you want to give it up and say, well, God is an old man who lives in China, and when he claps his hands, animals come. That's a model of God I can accept. That's nothing logically self-contradictory about it. But so what? I mean, well, how does that affect my life? 
doesn't. I mean, as you dumb down and small, make smaller the model of God, you wind up with one that becomes irrelevant in people's lives. So, you lose either way. Okay, Occam's razor. Well, I won't get into that. Um, why, why should one live if there's no God? Here's a, uh, a question I'm going to say for the rebuttal. Don't think that I haven't, um, or the closing statement. Here's, it, it's a question that is important. There's plenty of reasons to live without a God. Um, okay. I think that we've just about covered what I wanted to cover in this uh, first statement. I think I've shown that Reverend Shelby's cosmology is faulty. His statement of, some of, the, of what an atheist is is faulty. His statement of the idea of uh, a first cause and some of the, and the cosmological argument is faulty. And basically we are left with nothing to document his position. His use of the Bible is faulty. His model of God is faulty. Almost everything he said is faulty in some way. Now, if he wants to offer some better arguments, I'm all ears, as Ross Perot said. But, you know, the question is, can he offer them? Uh, I will be willing to let him try. Thank you. We will now go to five-minute cross-examination periods. And for the first five minutes, um, Dr. Stein will be asked questions by um, Reverend Schilling. Okay, uh, first question. Uh, define God and give two examples. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> serious about is to see whether or not you accepted my definition of God is acceptable well, for this debate um, it, it wasn't a bad definition. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what I would use as a definition of God in just a second here. I do have one. Um, okay. A supreme personal being distinct from the other, yes, that's fine. That's exactly the one that you used. You used Bertrand Russell's uh, definition from Father Collins, yes. Um, I, I think that that is a definition that's a working definition. It doesn't mean I agree that such a thing exists. It's just that it's a working definition that we can use to agree on. Uh, secondly, what for you would constitute evidence of God's existence? Okay, any logically non-self-contradictory proof, by that I mean of the, of the types of proofs that I read, the design argument, the cosmological argument, every, any one that leads to a necessary conclusion and does not contradict itself, that would be one thing. Another thing would be, if this podium rose up off the ground and stayed there for five minutes and then sank back down, no wires, no helicopters, no magnets, okay? And that was a little miracle or something, something that, that violated the laws of nature, the so-called laws of nature, and had no other explanation, and that would make me think of it as there was a supernatural, not necessarily a god, or not necessarily a Christian god. That's the first step. First step is to convince me that there's a supernatural. And if this thing would do it on command of some clergyman or some person who's supposed to have the ear of God, then that would make me more convinced that the supernatural was a responsive personality, if you want to call it that. So, so just to see what, what my task is, at least where uh, you're concerned tonight, if, if our definition is that God is separate from the world that he created, is it logical to only allow proofs that conform to the reason, logic, and evidentiary capacity of the created being? We have no choice other than doing that. That's all the tools we have in our toolbox, is reason and logic. And if you can think of another one, I'd like to hear it. Okay. Uh, is science atheistic? 
Science is atheistic by my definition because God is not allowed as part of the explanation. Now, why is this? I'll give you one very good example, a quick little example. Why would you not allow God as an explanation in science? Let's say I have If you don't mind, I would accept that. I'd like okay. To All right, sure. Is, is science only allowed a natural explanation for anything that occurs? Yes. Uh, now, apparently, from your talk, you're familiar with singularities in astronomy. Mm-hmm. Isn't a singularity an explanation by science for an event or a state for which there is no natural explanation and for which there is no regular law, and where before what they call blank time, all natural laws break down? Yes, but that's because we, we're not there. We have no way of observing a singularity. There's no experiment you can do with a singularity. This is strictly abstract conceptualization. Since the hypothesis comes from scientists who themselves are probably mostly agnostic or atheist, how, are you still sure that science only points to natural explanations in the theories that they put forth? Yes, there's no attempt to say that a singularity is supernatural. It's a natural phenomenon. It's just that we don't understand it because we weren't there. We have no way of recreating it in the laboratory. We can only speculate about it at this point. So it doesn't mean it's why can we not? Why can I not speculate about God tonight and that be accepted as scientific? Well, I just told you that the supernatural explanations are not allowed in science. It's, it's the natural explanation of the natural world. But like they don't have a natural explanation for the because they're speculating. It's not a supernatural explanation, it's just not a very adequate explanation. That's a little different because it's so so new and so difficult to, to pin down. Uh, in fact, they be rejected very quickly. Can you, can, can you see a black hole by observations? Yes. Not, not as a black hole, but you can see the effects of a black hole. Okay. Does that happen. not prove that there are some things even within our own universe which exist apart from our ability to observe them? I would never, never dispute that. Of course, we can, there are things, but they're, natu- they're natural things, not supernatural things. We can't, we can't see a dinosaur, see the light either, but we can speculate about them I mean, from the bones and from other evidence. If you would uh, allow me to ask a hypothetical question, I'm not really driving anywhere with this or necessarily follow up on it, but just because I'm curious, maybe some of the other people in the audience would be about how an atheist approaches this. Uh, let's say you have a daughter and she's nine years old. Uh, she's all that you have. She contracts leukemia. She's now on her deathbed. She's looking to you for comfort at that hour. What would you say? Well, I mean, I, I certainly would offer her comfort, in it, but my point would be that I don't see why the comfort has to be supernatural. It could be from the human heart, from the human spirit, from the human feelings. And that's what I would do. And I think those are perfectly adequate, if not even perhaps sometimes excessively adequate. Okay, I think my time's up. Okay, I have questions for you now. Do you think God's existence can be proven from reason alone? By reason alone? Uh, yes. Can you give me an example other than one that you've already given, which I didn't think worked, uh, of a, a way that that can be done? There's one way. Well, let's see. Uh, yes. Uh... I think it can be proven, uh, as I've said logically, it can be proven scientifically. It can be proven in the sense that, uh, uh, to draw an analogy, uh, when we look for life in the universe, how do we distinguish between natural uh, signals that are coming in and something that would be from supreme in, from uh, space intelligence? The way we distinguish is when we find encoded information. We may not be able to break the code, but if we get coded information, we know it's from an intelligence. 
like the DNA coding. Um, the chances of that happening, even in a small microorganism, is 1 in 10 to the 78,000 power, according to Fred Boyle's calculations. Which are wrong, by the way, I'll show you that. Well, I think even if, even if uh, we did away with natural selection, and we went to what they're calling now cumulative selection and let him keep all the right answers and just only throw away the wrong ones. You know, there are only one in 10 to the 80th power atoms in the entire universe. And if his calculations come up with one in 10 to the 78,000 okay. okay, you're giving a speech now. Way let's, wrong. Just, let's just answer the question. Um, okay, what would it take for you to give up your belief in God? What kind of evidence? <laughs> Would it take for you to give up your belief in that? Uh, I think that if if belief in God were not reasonable, that I would not believe in God. No, that's not evidence. You're 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 giving me what what is the basis of your uh, belief in God? I want to know what evidence. What evidence would it take for me not to believe in God? Evidence for me not to believe in God is that I would have to see random laws in nature. Uh, which is what you would predict from an atheist uh, universe, from a universe without God. I would have to. I could not see orderly no laws of nature. I would have to see ones that didn't work. I would have to see singularities that started uh, the universe, but uh, were so uncertain that they might not blow apart the universe tomorrow. Okay. And I don't see. What is what does the word faith mean to you? And is one ever justified in believing something on faith? And if so, why? Uh, faith, as Hebrews eleven one says, is the evidence of things not seen. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is not I hope something's out there when it's not. Faith is evidence of things that you can't see. Just like we we're talking about with black holes, you cannot observe directly, but you know they exist. Why? Because you can see the pointers that. Uh, uh, that indicate their existence. Would you say that faith and reason are antithetical systems or opposed opposite systems? No, not at all. They go hand in hand. How so? Uh, because, as I said, faith is evidence of things that are not seen. And so the evidence is still there, and uh, rationally and reasonably you come to the uh, conclusions, and when you come to that conclusion, that's faith. Okay, I'm going to get into this in my... But I disagree completely with that analysis, but we'll leave it at that. Um, are we justified in saying we do not know about things? So must we always have a uh, an explanation? Is that explanation not be correct? Uh, are we justified in saying that we don't know about things? Maybe the explanation or something. There's probably always an explanation, but we may not know it. And I mean, should we say that we don't know if we don't know? Yeah, I think we should. We will now go to 10-minute rebuttal speeches, beginning with Reverend Show. I want you to know that I take this uh, lousy plasmologist uh, part of an attack very personal. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> However, at least I did quote from the cosmologist. 
And uh, also, I would say that from the cosmologists I have read, even the ones that propose a mini Big Bang theory, as Dr. Stein did, which he tried to make you think that that indicates there could be an eternal universe, even the scientists who propose that admit that it does not. You could get no more than a hundred mini Big Bangs out of a mini Big Bang theory. So there may have been more than one Big Bang. Some, some scientists proposed that, but not more than a hundred, and you're still left not being able to say how it all started out in the first place without a creator. So at least I quoted from the cosmologists, and uh, I did not, I did not quote the Bible to support my position. I quoted the books at least, the, the astrophysicists and others to support my position. So, now you'll have to pardon me, but if the burden of proof is upon me tonight, then let me add to that burden. Because uh, uh, at this point, I think that since Dr. Stein did not meet any of my arguments head on, did not defeat them either logically or scientifically, I'm going to leave him in the dust and speak to you all tonight. <laughs> I want to raise the stakes a little bit, and I want to take the debate to a little higher level now. I don't want to talk about how something could come from nothing, I want to talk about how nature could come out of nothing. Now write this down and then we'll get to the evidence. Specific complexity points to intelligent design. Specific complexity points to intelligent design. The scientific evidence requires a conscious, superintelligent mind which has a particular concern for human beings. For the last six months, of, uh, past the six months of last year, the SETI, which is Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute, booked the Parkes Radio Telescope in Australia, the largest in the Southern Hemisphere, to target and tune into extraterrestrials. NASA spent $60 million on the, that project. Now that's important to our debate tonight, because how do scientists determine if a radio signal is from an intelligent source? How do they tell the difference between a signal in nature like a pulse from a pulsar and something that is sent from another being in outer space? The answer, as I mentioned a while ago, is that if you get a message in Morse code, you know that you've got something with intelligence behind it. Nature cannot duplicate Morse code. When you get a signal with encoded information, even if you cannot break the code, you know it is coming from an intelligent source and not from nature itself. God has established a worldwide web of pointers to his existence that starts with your genes and extends to the cosmos. Because nature cannot duplicate specified complexity. I only have time to give you probably five unnatural selections. Five, the top five specified selections. The top five pieces of natural evidence in this worldwide web of pointers to God's existence. I can't give you the top ten list tonight, but I have time to give you at least five. Number five, the existence of the elements necessary for life. Number five. The existence for the elements necessary for life. If you want natural evidence for God, God has done something infinitely greater than uh, making this podium levitate tonight. Because God has done something significantly more important than making the gas gauge go in your car from empty to full. Astrophysicist Sir Fred Hoyle precisely predicted the resonance of carbon-12 atoms based solely on life's need for it before it was even discovered. And when he later calculated the odds that such a resonance should ex exist by chance, he said that his atheism was greatly shaken. In explanation, he wrote the following in the November 1981 issue of Engineering and Science. A common-sense interpretation of the facts it suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics 
as well as with chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. I wonder if Dr. Stein would agree with this scientific assessment. Quote, he continues, the numbers one calculates from the facts seems to be so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question, unquote. Now, we also studied, as I mentioned, the encoded information in DNA, and that the chances of that happening uh, for even a simple microorganism is 1 in 10 to the 78,000 power. So he concludes this way, quote, Life could not have originated here on Earth. Nor does it look as though biological evolution can be explained from within an earthbound theory of life. Genes from outside the earth are needed to drive the evolutionary process. This much can be consolidated by strictly scientific means, by experiment, observation, and calculation, unquote. And you know something? If he were that wrong, he would be hooted out of science. He would not be Sir Fred Boyle knighted for his scientific achievements, and his books would not be uh, bought and, and sold as they are. He would be drummed out of the academic community. Now this gives us an indication just how strong a force the human will is. Because in the face of all the physical evidence, the atheists still hold out until God levitates this dumb podium. <laughs> they believe, and you know, in his place, in God's place, they have to postulate other extraterrestrial beings bringing the seeds of life here. <laughs> Number four, the ratio of proton to electron mass. The proton is 1,836 times heavier than the electron. Why? There's no natural reason. All we know is that without it, there would be no chemistry, no life, no physicists to wonder about it, no atheists to debate it. It just, all we know is it's just there. And I tell you tonight that that's the best argument, the best explanation that Dr. Stein will be able to come up with is that why is it there? Well, all we know is that if it weren't there, we wouldn't exist. That's why it's there. An anthro, uh, anthropic uh, argument. Theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking mentions this ratio between the masses as one of the many fundamental numbers in nature. He says, quote, The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life, unquote. Number three, the balance between the gravitational force and electromagnetic force in the stars. According to the calculations of physicist Brandon Carter, if the strength of the gravitational force were altered by as little as one part in ten to the fortieth power, we'd have an uninhabitable universe. Physicist Edward, Edward Kolb of the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory draws this conclusion from that fact. Quote, it turns out that constants of nature, such as the strength of gravity, have exactly the values that allow stars and planets to form. The universe is fine-tuned to let life and consciousness flower, unquote. Number two, the balance between the universe's expansion and its collapse. After completing most of his work on the singularities in the Big Bang in 1983, Stephen Hawking told a reporter, quote, The odds against a universe like ours emerging by itself out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think clearly there are religious implications whenever you start to discuss the origins of the universe. There must be religious overtones, but I think most scientists prefer to shy away from the religious side of it. And most atheists too, I think, unquote. That was my part of it. But even Stephen Hawking recognizes just how strong a force the human will is when it's faced with scientific and logical evidence. 
But as the chance for our universe's balanced expansion rate becomes ridiculously small, the chance it could ever happen becomes ridiculously small, the problem for Dr. Stein and others who wish to explain it by naturalistic means becomes equally large. As a matter of fact, I think there's a scientific law about the inverse proportional relationship between logic, facts, and reason on one hand, and the credibility of the atheist position on the other hand. Number one, the top, the number one, uh, natural evidence for the existence of God. Another thing that you can't explain without a God, the centrifugal force perfectly balances against gravitational force. You know, NASA has to plan with great precision in order to put a satellite into a nearly circular orbit. It takes scientists in order to do it, and even then they can't keep it up there indefinitely, and can't keep it up there perhaps for very long. There is no natural reason why the outward force produced by the revolving of planets should so perfectly counterbalance gravitation, except that if it didn't, all spinning systems with you crashing on themselves would fly apart. Theoretical physicist Heinz Pag uh, Pagels contemplates the void before the beginning this way. Where are these laws written into that void? What tells the void that is pregnant with a possible universe? It would seem that even the void is subject to a law, a logic that exists prior to space and time. Phys uh, Princeton physicist Terman Dyson writes, The more I examine the universe and the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe in some sense must have known we were coming. Nobel laureate Francis Crick, known for his co-discovery of DNA and cracking the genetic code, writes, quote, An honest man, armed with all the knowledge available to us now, could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle, so that all the conditions uh, which would have had to been satisfied to get it going are too many to be explained naturalistically. I don't know if uh, you want me to explain the miracles of the Bible, but I have a better one for Dr. Stein. How did you even get here tonight without there being a God? Turning water into wine is one thing, but that's very small. How, tell me how you got here by yourself in spite of the scientific evidence to the contrary. Well, I don't know how many scientists we have in the audience, but uh, I think I was just stunned by some of the comments that were just made. For example, he's criticizing the anthropic theory when he presented the anthropic theory as his position. That's incredible. What is the anthropic theory? It says that the, there must have been a god or some, some special condition because the conditions are so wonderful on the earth, they're absolutely perfect for life to have developed on the earth. We have the right temperature, the right humidity, the right uh, you know, sunlight, sunlight, everything else. It's just perfect. And therefore, that must have been a special place and a special creation that God made. That's called the anthropic theory. That's what he's supporting. And he's criticizing the anthropic theory. And while he might criticize it, this is exactly backwards of the facts. The reason life developed on the earth is because the humidity and the temperature and the sunlight were correct for evolution to occur. If it hadn't been correct, as it isn't on a lot of other planets, like Mercury and a number of other ones in the solar system and elsewhere in the universe, then life at least a carbon-based life as we know it, could not have developed. So it's exactly backwards to say that the reason life develops is that, I mean, this is a perfect place. It was all designed that way. Uh, it's because the conditions were right here that life developed in the first place, given the passage of enough time. And what about the odds that he's quoting? They're absolute baloney. I'll tell you why. 
Not every reaction can occur. You know about chemical valences and things like that. There are only certain reactions that can occur. When a certain molecule or atom meets another atom, sometimes it can combine with it and sometimes it can't because of the shapes of the atoms, the electrochemistry of it, the physical charges, all kinds of reasons like that. That immediately narrows down the number of the odds to a narrow band, not a small band, but a much smaller band than if any reaction could occur. You don't even calculate odds on the basis of any reaction occurring, because it can occur. Why, why even put those into the odds? This is where Hoyle is absolutely wrong. And, uh, and in fact, I was stunned by the fact that he's quoting Fred Hoyle, who says that life it could not have originated on the Earth, therefore it originated somewhere else, on another planet or another part of the, of the universe, and it was transmitted by comets or meteors or something to the Earth. Now this is a ridiculous position because it gets them into nowhere, absolutely nowhere. It means that you have to now explain how did life originate in another place. You know, I mean, if you want to move it off the Earth, you just moved it back a step, but so what? Explain it, how did it get there in the other place? How did it originate there? He doesn't get out of the problem at all. And to quote Fred Hoyle, I mean, approvingly in one second and then disapprovingly in another is ridiculous. We either accept his idea that life originated outside of the Earth, and that's why the odds, which he postulates incorrectly as being very large, are not so large because it originated somewhere else. <clears throat> or you don't, and I don't. I mean, I don't think he, that helps any. Now let's get into the idea of God as an explanation. Here's a big problem he hasn't even addressed. If I say... How did something occur? Well, what was the explanation of something? And you say, it's a mystery. Have you given me an explanation? You just put a label on it. Mystery. That doesn't explain anything. An explanation must explain something. Now, if I said, here's the, here's the thing I wanted to bring up before about example of why God is not allowed as an explanation in science, it comes to this very point. Let's say I had a chemical experiment, and I got a precipitate when I mix these two chemicals together. And you ask me, what is the explanation for this? Why did it occur? And you say, God did it. The next time I mix these two chemicals together, there's no precipitate. And I say, well, how do you explain that? God did it. So, in other words, I can give the answer, God did it, to anything, and it doesn't explain anything. An explanation must explain something. To put a label on it, God did it, or how did the universe get here? God created it. How did he create it? Now, if you can explain to me how he created it, then we have an explanation. If we don't know, then we have no explanation. So to think you've gotten out of the problem by saying, well, God did it, 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 it gets us nowhere, so to put a label on it, that's all. So I would hold that he has given you no explanation for how the universe got here, and his explanation is much worse because by Occam's razor, he's got an extra level of explanation in there which gets us nowhere. It's, it's what's called multiplying, uh, he's multiplying the possible causalities of things without taking the simplest explanation. Simplest explanation would explain how the universe got here in a simple, physical way, if there is such a way. Now he's stuck in God there, which doesn't help us any. Now he's got to explain how God did it, so he's got another level of explanation. Principle of parsimony is the name for Adam's razor. It says, take the simpler of two explanations, both of which are adequate to explain the phenomenon. And he has violated that as sort of a logical principle. Okay, here. Atheism, uh, Produce it, would produce, if they were an atheistic state, if there really were no God, then there would be random laws in the universe. Absolute nonsense. If, if I had a ball and I dropped it and it fell every time, that's one scenario. The second scenario is 
I take a ball and drop it. One third of the time, it falls down. One third of the time, it shoots out. One third of the time, it shoots up into the air. And you can't predict which, which one of those three things will happen. Now, which of those two is more likely to be caused by a god? Certainly not the one where it shoots in three directions. That would require some supernatural intervention to decide sometimes the atoms are going to go this way because I'm going to force them that way. Sometimes they're going to go that way because I'm going to force I being God. I'm going to force them that way and sometimes that way. So the completely random chaotic uh, movement of the universe is evidence for a supernatural being in there intervening. If we have, on the subatomic level, constancy. By that I mean a proton is always positively charged, an electron is always negatively charged, a proton and an electron attract each other, two protons repel each other, the poles of a similar poles of a magnet always repel each other. If we have that on a subatomic level, that regularity, that is all that's necessary for what appears to be order in the universe. And that I mean things are happening in the same way. If I drop a ball, it falls down every time. That, you know, on the, on the Earth, anyway. So, uh, with, with that, that, I mean it's outer space. It's, you know, we haven't got gravity uh, acting that way. We have a different situation. But anyway, the, the regularity of things on the Earth that appear to be what we call order, that's a human concept imposed upon regularity, is due to the fact that there's a, there's a stability and a uniformity on the subatomic level. That's all. Isn't that supernatural involved at all? Okay, the 100 Big Bang thing. Absolute nonsense. I don't know where that figure came from. It's, I've never seen it. I've read lots of stuff on cosmology. It's someone's idle speculation about the uh, expanding and contracting universe, the 100 limit. I don't agree at all. I don't think anyone says that. Uh, by the way, Stephen Hawking, who he loves to quote, is an atheist. So, in spite of the fact that you may not know that, he has said it many times that he is an atheist. And that would kind of weaken what he's saying if you think that it's supporting theism, because it isn't, at least not in his mind. Now let's come to the idea of morality. I want to just hit this once, we haven't really touched on it. How does a non-theist uh, form of morality? Is it possible for you, without a belief in God, without a belief in absolute God-given morality, is it possible for you to be a moral person? The answer is yes, of course it is. Now how do we get our morality? We get it by the socialization process, largely. We learn it from our parents, our peers, our society. That society punishes us if we violate it, it ostracizes us, jails us, does something bad to us, criticizes, punishes us, whatever. Now, what kind of things can an atheist use as moral values? There are four principles that I think are important. The golden rule, which does not come from Christianity, and it doesn't matter where it comes from, it goes way back before Christianity. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. No supernatural involved there. <clears throat> the uh, self-actualization idea. Allow a person to reach his or her potential, whatever that is. Don't hurt other people against their will. And fourth one is the utilitarian principle, the greatest good for the greatest number. With those four principles, not one, and not, you're not using just one and ignoring the other three, but using all four of them, one can make a decision, a moral decision about anything, virtually anything, with one or two exceptions. There's some scientific things, like the effect of a drug, which just take a long time to come out as long-term side effects, something we just don't know whether giving that will harm people, so we cannot know whether we're hurting people against their will. But in almost every other case, you can make a moral decision and come up with a conclusion. And that's basically what we do. We don't turn to God for answers on everything, because the, the Bible doesn't provide answers for everything either, or they're contradictory answers very often. So the point is that most people make moral decisions in this way without even realizing it. 
And an atheist can indeed make them that way and does make them. And the fact that there are millions of moral atheists, in fact, I would say that the moral values are higher, but I can't prove that. Nevertheless, the point is that it shows that it can be done. And that it can be done is done. So don't worry about the effect of not having a belief in God upon moral values. And there are lots of people who believe in God who have very bad moral values, so I mean, it works both ways. So um, anyway, I think I've shown you that a lot of what you just heard in the previous speeches, uh, well, there's a two-letter word for it. It starts with a B, and the last letter is an S, okay? We will now conclude the advocacy portion of the debate with five-minute closing statements from both sides, and we'll begin again with Reverend Schoen. I think that uh, Norman Schwartz called call that Goldmine's Gatology. That's it. <laughs> Quote, it is possible to calculate that in this case there can have been at most a hundred bounces. In other words, the universe must have had a beginning at a finite time in the past. We are thus led back to the problem of creation out of nothing that the oscillating universe was designed to avoid in the first place. Unquote. Now, I've given you logical arguments tonight. Instead, Dr. Stein has set up his own arguments and attacked them. I have also uh, given you scientific evidence tonight. And whatever else he may say about my numbers, all I did was quote the science, scientists uh, that, that write in the, the books and uh, evidence that any honest person would accept. Which takes faith to believe that the design of the universe and the narrow parameters for life point to some means by which it could have created itself, not only against all odds, but against all logic and evidence, or that it points to a reason for our existence, and tonight you found it. We've shown evidence of a transcendent creator who has displayed his character and his creation, his desire for love freely given by his allowance for evil, and his care and concern for man and his plan of salvation. So the real question is not the evidence. The question is the conclusion that you will draw. If all this evidence is so compelling, why don't all the physicists and the scientists believe in God? The answer is because there's a force which is stronger than reason and logic, and faced when faced with overwhelming scientific evidence, it will still resist logical conclusions. That force is your will. And Dr. Stein will ask, can your God create a rock so big he can't move it? He already has. Your will. Famed physicist and mathematician Sir James, Sir James Jean summed up his discoveries on galaxy formation this way, quote, The universe begins to look more like a great thought than a great machine. Mind no longer appears as an accidental intruder into the realm of matter. We're beginning to suspect that we ought rather to hail it as the creator and governor of the realm of matter. We discover that the universe shows evidence of a designing or controlling power that has something in common with our own individual minds, unquote. Astrophysicist Arthur Eddington came to the same conclusion. He said, quote, the idea of a universal mind or logos would be, I think, a fairly plausible inference from the present state of scientific theory, unquote. If you deny logic, reason, and factual evidence, you're left with nothing better than what Dr. Stein offers you. The greatest reason to reject atheism is not because of what it proves, because it proves nothing. It does not prove God's death or even his absence. The greatest reason to reject atheism is because of what it offers. 
It offers you logic without reason. It offers you science without hope. And it offers you life without morals. In your heart, you may say there is no God, but you cannot reason logically that way, and you cannot discover scientifically that way. You affirm the laws of logic, but can't explain their existence. You affirm the laws of science, but cannot account for their regularity. But now here's the real reason why anybody chooses atheism. Because they will not affirm laws of morality, universal and absolutely defined. The reason for denying the evidence in logic and science is to hide from God in the area of morals. Go home tonight and consider. Why do you still use laws of logic and science and yet reject absolute laws of morality and think yourself logical, rational, uh, reasonable, and consistent? Resolve tonight that contradiction of admitting a creation vein but not a creator. Resolve tonight that contradiction of admitting his universal laws and yet denying his right to rule over you. Resolve tonight that contradiction of subjecting yourself willingly to the laws of science and yet rebelling to be your own God in the area of morals. People who know the truth can work extremely hard to suppress it, to be consistent in their inconsistencies, so they can prove not from the evidence, but to themselves that there is no God. No one will be argued by this debate tonight into a belief for God. I know that. But you may be argued into a posture of discovering Him. You may be convicted of the bankrupt nature of a world without Him. And you may cry to Him yet tonight. And because He is there, He will answer. He will answer consistent with His nature. He will answer abstractly and spiritually. He will answer to your heart, but no less to your mind. In the last few seconds I have in my time tonight, I want to thank uh, Verl Muir and the uh, Center for Inquiry Midwest uh, for helping us set this up, and Adam and the Bible study group that meets out here on the Tuesday nights on the campus, and uh, also the debate club of KU for being here as moderator and timekeeper and doing such a great job for us, and I also want to thank Dr. Stein for being so gracious to come out here and meet with us. Thank you. We've, talk, we've talked about a number of talked about a number of issues here tonight, and uh, I, I will say one thing: he quotes a lot of physicists by name, but he doesn't tell you that he's got the three or four physicists who are theists and who have written from a theistic perspective. He's ignored all of the other ones. In fact, Eddington and Jeans are physicists from the twenties and thirties. Uh, just to show you how uh, long it's been since there's been a physicist who's taken a very theistic position publicly about uh, the physics of the implications for theology of physics in a theistic way, very few. And in fact, there's a very nice book that just came out by a guy named Victor Stenger uh, called Quarks and something or another, previous books, and it, it, he shows you that all of this new age thinking that quantum physics, uh, quantum mechanics, I should say, uh, supposedly gives some kind of strength to theology or theism is absolutely nonsense, it does not. So, uh, yeah, I urge you to read that. It's too complicated an issue to go through the whole thing of why it doesn't. Okay. Let, let me just address the issue of faith, which I left hanging before. Faith is not the same as reason. Faith means doing things without using reason. Without, it is a, reason is the only tool in our toolbox, logic and reason, to find out the truthfulness of something. 
Faith is not telling you the truth. There's no analytics to it. There's no testing mechanism. It just says, accept things, hope for things. Or, or this is a hope. The, the quote he gave from Hebrews 11 says basically the evidence of things unseen. Now, what is the evidence of things unseen? There's no evidence of things uns- from things unseen. If you don't see them, and we don't mean with a microscope, we see them with some sensory input from them, then there's no evidence for, for them, from them, from them. And therefore, you are basically making a conclusion without any evidence, which is exactly what faith is. It's coming to the conclusion that you want to come to without any evidence, without adequate evidence. So if you do that, then you're not having any analytics. There's no way of telling whether what you just accepted was true or false. I have no use for faith in my life. I do not believe anything on faith. Probability, yes. When I come to a red light, I know from my experience with red lights that they're going to turn green most of the time once they're broken. It's not faith, it's experience. Confidence based on past experience. So that's what you use to make a decision about something, not, at least I don't, use faith. Now, what's the purpose of life? He said atheism leads to logic without reason. It's ridiculous, you can't have logic without reason. And nor does anyone say that atheism implies that in any way. Life without hope, absolute nonsense. I have lots of hope in life. What does an atheist hope for? What is the purpose in life of an atheist? An atheist wants to make the world a better place, people's happiness increase, why? Because we're the only ones who can do it. We, the human beings, are the only ones who can do it. We, there's no God to help us that we see any evidence for. And in addition, we have an obligation because of past people who helped make the world a better place so that we would enjoy it. We have almost a social contract based on the fact that people invented things, people uh, you know, came up with ideas, systems, uh, laws, order, all kinds of society things, which help us live in a much more civilized, happy, uh, more enjoyable way. And we have an obligation to pass that on to our kids by making the world a little better place. Now, if you're a janitor and you clean a building every night, and that's your, your ability is limited to that, and then you're doing your job, you are making the world a little better place up to your capacity. No one says you have to go out and let the light bulb. If you can, fine, do. But if you can't, just do your little part, make the world a little better place, and we will all come out better for it. And in addition, you will be paying back what I think is your obligation based on the fact that other people have done that and make the world a better place for you. So, there's plenty of purpose in life for an atheist. And as I said, I'm only an atheist because you haven't given me enough evidence that the theistic position is correct. If you do, then I will become a theist. I'm not wedded to that position, it's not an absolute with me, it's not dogmatic, it's just based on observation, I'm a realist. I think everybody would be a realist. We take what we have, and that's it. If you give me your best shot, you know, if you can't do any better, fine. That's as well, good as you can do, and I'm gonna judge what you've done. I don't think we've heard any convincing arguments, at least I haven't heard any tonight, I've heard, heard and read almost everyone that's ever been made. If you think that you've heard convincing arguments, fine, believe them. If you don't think so, keep an open mind, keep looking, and make the world a better place, and you'll be happy, I think, and can lead a fine life. Thanks. Well, this concludes the advocacy portion of the debate. We will invite you that if you have questions for either of the speakers or both of the speakers, that you come down to the front and take a slip of paper and a pencil and write your questions legibly, please print them so I will be able to read them. If I can't read your question, it will be discarded. And after the 10-minute break or so, we'll collect the questions and start asking them, and we will ask 
good for the greatest number of people. But what that means is that within Hitler's Germany, if the greatest number of people decided it was right to kill the Jews, then they killed the Jews. Now you may say, well, yes, but within Western society, we don't agree with what Hitler's Germany did, therefore it was wrong. Well, it wasn't wrong at that time to those people who did it. And if you say that, well, in Western society, well, you know, we're in a, we're in a logical bond here where in some societies, uh, they welcome their neighbors, and in some societies, they eat them. <laughs> and both are equally right in an atheist system. <laughs> this question is addressed to Reverend Shelby. Even granted all your numbers proving a narrow band in which life can occur, how does evidence that the universe is, quote, finely tuned, unquote, presuppose a fine tuner? All that it shows is that this is our universe and it permitted us to come about. Well, I think now we're back to uh, admitting the scientific evidence because you can't do anything other than that uh, and not dealing with totally ignoring the logical evidence. Because because neither Dr. Stein, you know, nobody said tonight, okay, you went through these logical uh, proofs and you gave these eight logical pointers and it was all tightly reasoned together and nobody broke that chain and nobody, uh, you know, uh, uh, he basically set up uh, arguments that I hadn't used in, to attack them. So logically, there has to be, there has to be a cause for every effect. Now, if you don't want to go by logic and reason, then be an atheist, that's fine. But if you're going to go by logic and reason, you need to make it consistent over all areas of your life, including the spiritual and the religious area. And so if, you, if, if you're going to do that, then the reason why there, uh, uh, that all of the evidence and design points to a God is for the logical reasons that we started off with tonight. Uh, the design and the evidence is there. Therefore, uh, that is among... Those natural pointers to God are valid because they fit in logically with what we know must be true. Um, what scientists, in order to get out of admitting they're a God, they come up with the anthropic principle, which I don't think was quite as Dr. Stein described it tonight, but they have a weak anthropic principle, they have a strong anthropic principle, they have a participatory anthropic principle. Now, I have my own, uh, you know, you have, so you have SAP, WAP, FAP. I have CRAP, uh, which I think I probably, <laughs> most of these cosmological, uh, you know, reverberation anthropic principles <laughs> are, are that bovine statology <laughs> that, uh, that, uh, General Schwarzkopf talked about one of his uh, one of his press briefings uh, because you simply can't get out of it. You can't get out of it scientifically. You can't get out of it logically. You want to say, okay, the numbers are there, and they admit that there's this narrow band, uh, but then you want to get out of saying that it couldn't have gotten here any other way. Uh, and you just can't do that with every other thing in life. Whether you're talking about bouncing a ball, well, somebody bounced it, somebody threw it. If the, if you want to say a cyclic uh, big, many big bangs, and it's bouncing back and forth. Well, somebody started it going. Uh, somebody threw the ball in the first instance at the first time. Somebody laid the cosmic egg, or somebody lit the fuse, 
and uh, uh, otherwise you're just not being logical because nothing else in the universe happens that way, does it? Does anything else happen without a cause? I can't think of anything that happens without a cause. I tell you what, you show me how those logical principles are invalid, and then maybe you have a case uh, for your position. Well, I'm surprised here because an atheist is the last person in the world who would say don't use logic and reason. If you don't use logic and reason, you'll be a theist, not an atheist. The atheist sticks to logic and reason. That's all we have to make decisions. And if logic and reason puts you in a, gives you a conclusion that you don't like, well, it's too damn bad. You know, that's the way it works. Uh, and if you don't want to believe it, you want to believe it on faith in spite of the fact that logic and reason take you to the opposite position, then you are a theist. The atheist doesn't have that problem. The atheist position is based on logic and reason. Now, secondly, I'm, I'm glad that uh, we... I was surprised that he says I didn't address his arguments. I specifically answered every argument that he, he offered that made that was relevant at all. And I pointed out the ones that weren't relevant. So to make that charge uh, is to define his position as he did as C R A P. Okay, the next question is addressed to both speakers, and we'd ask them to take two minutes apiece for this. Uh, what do you think about reincarnation? Question mark. And we will start with Reverend Sheldon. Uh, I'd say that I think about reincarnation the same way I think about the cyclic theory of, uh, of many big bangs. Uh, you know, life happening over and over again. I, I would, I call, I would call. Uh, you know, Dr. Stein said I'm a lousy cosmologist, and I and, and I take that really hard. I would call his cosmology voodoo cosmology, and so I think reincarnation is kind of a a voodoo uh, life after death explanation. Um, uh, with, uh, again, uh, the problem is there's no evidence either from logic or from reason or from uh, science uh, that uh, reincarnation is, uh, is valid as an explanation for what happens to, uh, to a person after death. Well, we are in agreement here. Uh, and in the sense that I think that logically we have a problem with reincarnation. Because are you saying that as reincarnation is saying that the personality of the previous person survives? If so, how does it survive when the body is dead? I mean, where, where is this personality? Is it hanging around in space uh, without any physical uh, atoms or anything else to it? It causes a real problem, logically and scientifically and factually, as to why I'm explaining this. Why should it come back in a particular another person? So, I mean, I think there's, you can't really make a case for reincarnation that holds up logically. I mean, it sounds great. You know, eternal life, it's another way of having eternal life in a way, but I don't think that the Christian explanation for eternal life is any better. It has the same problems. Uh, you're coming back after you're dead uh, in heaven or in some other place, uh, in the rapture or whatever you want to call it, uh, depending on which particular theology you're subscribing to, is to be fraught with exactly the same problems as reincarnation is. And to say it isn't is to ignore the, the, the logical problems involved in it. The next question is addressed to Dr. Stein. Do you believe the existence of so many religions would not lend proof to the idea of the existence of some kind of supernatural being, i.e. a god? Otherwise, how could or would mankind have originally conceived of the idea? Well, there's three different questions all wrapped up in here. Uh, does the widespreadness of something attest to its truth? The answer is no. It, it, it attests to some kind of human need, perhaps, 
to believe in this idea. And I think it comes from the fact that we are, we're kind of scared in this world. You know, the world can overwhelm you with uh, those a lot of unknown things, a lot of dangers. And it's nice to have a kind of a protector. Even if you make it up yourself, your imaginary protector uh, will keep you out of uh, problems and make sure that you survive and that you reach happiness and that everything will work out well in the end. It's a great idea. I, I, I applaud you. I mean, if this were an advertising campaign, the guy would get a huge bonus and become vice president of the firm. Because it's a great idea, it doesn't mean it's true. I test the truthfulness of something by the facts. And what are the facts? The facts do not support that position, even though it's a great comfort-giving idea. And if people want to believe in that idea because it makes them happy, that's their right. I would never take that away from them. I just say if we're going to examine the facts behind something, let's examine the facts and come to a conclusion based on the facts. If you want to continue to believe something or don't want to examine the facts and go in your own little corner, fine. I think I would I would agree that the different religions proves that there is a God, but maybe for a different reason. Uh, if there is only one God, uh, and if that God cares how he is worshipped, then uh, what you have to say is that he cannot be the author of good and evil at the same time. Uh, since there is evil in the universe, it stands to reason that there was an author of that separate from God. And that author of evil, since he is evil himself, both a murderer and a liar, uh, uh, because he exists, would counterfeit the things that God does. He would counterfeit the one true religion uh, uh, that God has. But now think about this. Just because there are so many concepts of God does not mean that there's not one true one. And it doesn't mean that you can't find it. The next question is addressed to Reverend Shelby. What does God consist of? There are about eight different statements in the Bible that gives you some, some really good definitions. I think two of the key ones, uh, because this hits really squarely at the atheist arguments, God is light and God is love. God is light and God is love. God is light. Now, that's something that's even proven scientifically because as Einstein goes through his, his uh, equations for general relativity and is, and is talking about how um, light stays constant, light is the constant no matter uh, where you are at in relationship to objects where are which are moving. Uh, everything else is measured against light. In terms of the observable universe and things that we can test scientifically, light is the constant, everything else is measured against it, and so light is a good picture of God. I think that's one of the reasons why God says, or the Bible says that God is light. Because again, God is that constant against which everything in the universe is also measured. So light is the constant in, in, against which everything is measured. God is light. God is also love. Because here's another area where you have no explanation. Uh, you have no explanation for these type of things apart from God. In other words, uh, if you want to say that the only thing that you will admit the existence of are things that you can prove naturally, then you've eliminated the existence of what? The mind, ideas, thoughts, love, emotions, you have uh, your those are not things that you can that you can learn about uh, by by putting them in a test tube, and yet we know that they exist. Uh, man has a soul. We know that's the case. You know, Doctor Stein might not 
accept that and agree with that, but we know that we've got a mind, we've got rationality, we've got thoughts, we've got emotions. Uh, in other words, how do you, without a God, how do you get a personality from only uh, uh, natural substances? How do you evolve the mind? How do you evolve a personality? Where did it come from? Uh, it, now, I have an answer for that. An atheist worldview does not have an answer for that because there's no creator. And to say that it just evolved over time is, again, to beg the question, unless you can show the mechanism scientifically by which that could evolve over time and by which that could happen. So love is another good one that hits, I think, right at the core of the issue where atheists are concerned because you have no explanation uh, for those type of feelings and values uh, in an atheist world system. So God is light and God is love, uh, I think, are two key ones that I would say, as well as the Bible says God is spirit, and I, I addressed that at some length in my opening statement. It's not correct to say that atheists have no explanation for these things. Uh, and it just isn't explainable in an atheist worldview. Uh, we do. We don't have an answer that is detailed, but I have a, somewhat of an explanation. I certainly believe in love. I believe in mind. I believe in emotions. I think light is a valid concept. I don't have to call it God. I don't think that. I think it just complicates things. Why call it God? It's a perfectly good word. Light. A perfectly good word. Love. A perfectly good word. Mind. And what is mind? Uh, I think, and I give you sort of an analogy. When you hear a motor running, the motor is turned on. It's running. You hear a hum. What is the hum? If I take the entire motor apart, I will not find the hum. It is not a physical, it's not a thing that I can put in a bottle or in a, in a can or a jar. Yet it is a symptom or a evidence that the motor is running. Mind is, is, the, is the thing that occurs when the brain is working. It's the symptom of the brain functioning some way. It doesn't, I mean, you can't, you take the whole brain apart, you won't find mine, but that doesn't mean it isn't a valid concept. It's something that's useful, and that's why we have an explanation. I mean, that's my explanation. It's not a perfect explanation, but at least it doesn't fail us to tell you lack of an explanation. The next question is addressed to both speakers. Isn't the patriarchy complicit in the theological position merely an indication of the social advantage for patriarchs? That is, don't the strong males get to make the rules and take the power, quote, capitalized, underlined, in his image, close quotes, question mark? Who was that addressed to first? Both. Oh, first. Okay. Well, this is a little bit off the subject, but I see it as partly on the subject, too. Uh, yes, there's certainly a sexist element in a lot of religions, and it's a male sexist element in most religions. And uh, there have been attempts to make the Bible neuter, gender neutral, and a lot of people have howled and screamed, you know, because of the changing of the text of the Bible to make it gender neutral. Uh, I think this is a problem throughout society, and it's not necessarily just confined to religion. We have often uh, the person who makes, who has the power, has the goal, makes the rules, if you know what I mean. In other words, you, uh, if you have the power, you make the rules, and if the rules are uh, sexist or slanted in your direction, uh, your gender, then that's the way they are, uh, because of that, having the power. Uh, I'm not approving of this, I think it, I cannot confine it just to religion that does this, but it certainly does do it. The answer is no. <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> Uh, well, the question having to do with, uh, uh, I think, a kind of a left-handed slap at 
uh, the Bible and Christianity in, in implication uh, that it's uh, chauvinistic in its tenets. And uh, that, that's a false implication that's not true. Now, I think these questions like this uh, are valid, but obviously they don't have to do with the existence or the non-existence of God. And if, if uh, you know, somebody wanted to debate that, if these type of questions at a future time, I could do that. But, um, you know, I think the more problematic thing, if we're going to tie this back into the debate tonight, the more problematic thing for a person who takes the atheist position is that obviously the atheist mechanism for getting us here is evolution. But now, explain to me how, when you're dealing with males and females who are both constructed differently, who comes first? Which came first? One of them came first, didn't they? In terms of evolution, did not one of them came first, they didn't both come together. How did they come? Who came first? But now, if one of them came first without the other one, how did the other one get here? Without the first one. See what I'm saying? So if we tie this back down to the subject tonight, which had to do with atheism, I mean, that a person can have their opinion about what the Bible might imply regarding uh, the relationship between the sexes, but in terms of atheism, it has much wider implications, I think, that are that uh, uh, once again show the bankruptcy of the atheist position uh, scientifically and logically. The next question is for Dr. Stein. This person writes, the Bible was written by over 30 authors on five continents over a period of time of 4,000 years. It gave 48 prophecies about one man that all came to be. Please explain that. Well, I think I talked to this gentleman who this question this was during the break. Um, I will give it for the general audience here. First of all, let me just make one statement, which really I shouldn't make, but I would suggest that Reverend Shelby ought to examine what evolution says because you see this question about male and female is nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. It isn't a valid question even. Okay, let's go back to this. Uh, the, the point is that uh, the, uh, the 48 prophecies, what does it take for something to be a prophecy? It must be made before the event occurred. It must be clear and unambiguous, and it must have been fulfilled in the way that the event actually happened. Those are the three rules for prophecy, my rules, but they're rules that just any common sense person would say. There are almost no prophecies in the Bible that meet all three of those rules. We can definitely show that they were written before the event occurred. It's very easy to predict something after it happened. Simple. Number two. It must be clear and unambiguous. A virgin shall conceive. Isaiah has nothing to do with Mary. It has to do with the wife of King Ahaz. That's it right in there. Look at the next sentence. So you can't just take an ambiguous thing and apply it to whatever you want. And three, it must be fulfilled in the way it says. Now I'll give you an example of a prophecy that's totally unfulfilled. And that is, it says in the book of Micah that the city of Damascus shall be destroyed. Damascus is still the capital of Syria. It's been in existence for thousands of years. It's never been destroyed. And it's written clearly as a prophecy. Now, if you want to say, oh, well, there's some prophecies that don't come true. Do they or don't they? Are they from God or not? I mean, you want to hold them up to the same criteria? Let's hold them up. That was one that was made before the event happened. It's one that's clear and unambiguous. And it has never happened, never come true. If you explain it, I defy you to show me 43 predictions that meet all those three criteria. If they don't, there aren't predictions that are adequate. I think, uh, again, that would be the subject of another yes. debate, which I would be glad to do. Uh, <laughs> 
since Dr. Stein harkened back for a previous question to make a comment, let me let me also inject one comment about the same thing. Not only does evolution not have a scientific explanation for where the sexes came from, but it's also got a much bigger problem in terms of the races. Because evolution, if it's true, is inherently racist, which is where you can get uh, Adolf Hitler arguing for the supremacy of the Aryan race. So uh, for the person that wants to say that the Bible is uh, sexist, uh, I disagree. Uh, but to say from an atheist position that evolution is not, or that it's not racist, uh, you have to be consistent, if that's what you're going to believe in. Now, um, uh, I think that in terms of the question that was just asked, the problem is uh, you can set up your, uh, the elements in your investigation to get the answer that you want. And uh, that's uh, what is done uh, by those who say that uh, uh, the prophecies are invalid. Uh, also, uh, I would say regarding Damascus, that just as, uh, all I would say is God does not settle all of his accounts in 1996. <laughs> Next question from Reverend Shelby. Do you believe that other beings can exist in other areas of the universe? Yes, and they do. In terms of, if you're, if, if you're asking me a theological question, what does the Bible describe? The Bible describes uh, other beings that exist in other areas of the universe and names them and even describes some of their functions and interrelationships uh, between each other and uh, things that they do. In terms of a hierarchy of spiritual beings and things like that. So the short answer is yes. Are you talking about angels? Or are you talking about being human beings? Are they angels? Well, that was the, the question. Was the question human beings? No, other beings. beings. If the question is, is that vaguely worded, that beings could be supernatural beings, then I think the answer is no. I don't think there are supernatural beings or angels anywhere in the universe. Now, if you're asking if living forms of intelligence that we might call, I don't know if you want to call them human beings, but intelligent life, I think you understand what I mean, flesh and blood life exists elsewhere in the universe, I think almost definitely yes. Um, there's no reason why another planet can't have the same conditions uh, hospitable to life and that evolution would have occurred there as well. And uh, so, you know, if we want to divide the question that way, I would say yes to one and no to the other. Uh, the next question is addressed to both, and we'll let uh, Reverend Shelby answer first. What's the proof that it's one and only one God? Certainly all the bad things in the universe, the pointless deaths caused by natural disasters, the birth defects, the diseases, etc., suggest botched work done by a committee of gods. <laughs> I like the way that's put. I'm trying to think of a way I can use that to apply to my staff makes sometimes. <laughs> I think, uh, however, the same answer that I gave before uh, on one of the other questions. You would never know what red was. You never would, because there's never anything to compare it against. Now, if there is one God, do you not think that in order to display his love, he has to allow evil. I mean, logically he does. Otherwise, it cannot be displayed. 
So the fact that God allows these choices to be made is no implication, negative implication on him. Doesn't mean he created evil. But he allowed evil so that his love could be displayed and you would have choices. Now, I think uh, Dr. Stein and all of us would agree that uh, uh, events have consequences, that actions have consequences. And the Bible speaks to that very clearly in terms of actions having consequences. And those consequences are just as you described uh, in the question that there is pain and there is suffering and uh, uh, the, uh, the, the natural order that we see now in that sense to some degree is botched. Now, there was no problem with the creating of it, but we know that something happened uh, to inject the problems that we have now. And uh, the simplest explanation, the simplest is always best, is that if there's one true God, in order to display who he is, he has to allow uh, the opposite of his character to exist, and that person that displays the opposite of his character uh, then counterfeits what he does, which related to, to the question we had a while ago, but then also uh, brings in the other things. Don't blame God for uh, pain and suffering. Uh, uh, blame the opposite of God, and uh, blame also the actions and the choices uh, that are made uh, were made by individuals. Uh, because uh, those choices and those actions had uh, consequences. And uh, all, of, all of that stands true to scientific uh, law. The thing that you should be noticing is not that God allowed that to happen, but that God himself took that burden upon himself, became a man, put himself under the, same, the subjection of the same innocent person suffering wrongly, in order to take away and give you an opportunity for salvation and a, a plan, a method of salvation, a way for you to be redeemed out of it. There's a Bible verse which I cannot uh, identify by location, which, in which God says that he created evil. And if you don't believe me, look it up in your concordance, you'll see that it indeed says that, that God says he created evil as well as good. So uh, his theology is a little faulty, he must go by the Bible. Number two, God is obviously allowing evil. If he can't, if he's not allowing it, then it wouldn't happen. If he wanted to stop it, he's omnipotent, remember? He could easily stop it. So he is allowing it. To say that he's not allowing it is ridiculous. This is allowing it. <clears throat> and this is a little bit of a problem with an all, with an all good God. And it goes to what I was saying about the model being so contradictory before. Now, this business about a committee making, you know, like a botched committee making the things, I think that that's absolutely a very good observation. We certainly don't have a perfect world here. We have lots of disease, hunger, illness, all kinds of things like that. And uh, close with just a quotation from, uh, I'll illustrate this point from one of my favorite people, Robert G. Ingersoll, who said, if I asked him the question, the newspaper man asked him the question, what would you do to change the design of the world if you were God? He said, well, I'd make good health catching instead of disease. If you think about it, this is a brilliant statement. Because if the world were really cleverly designed, why shouldn't good health be something that spreads into the world like an epidemic? Why should disease be the thing that spreads? I mean, this is a terrible thing to have disease spread around. And it certainly uh, flies in the face of an old good God, especially if innocent people are afflicted with this disease. It should have been designed so that good health could spread like a contagion. All right, the next question is addressed to Dr. Stein. You said gravity was a natural law. Then please explain it naturally. 
I didn't say it was a natural law. What I said is that natural the laws, what we call laws, are statistical probability statements. We drop a ball over and over and over again millions of times. We drop an object millions of times, and we see that it always falls to the earth. And so we make a statement that the probabilities are that the next time we drop a ball, it will fall to the earth. And that's what a scientific law is. It's basically a probability statement, the probability being almost 100%, perhaps 100%, I'll say 99.999% that the next time a ball will drop. And we say that that is due to gravity. We don't explain gravity, at least not in just postulating that it exists, because we don't, in this particular case, know how gravity works. I can't explain it. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist, that I can't explain it. In fact, science can't explain a lot of things yet. I hope, I'm holding the confidence that eventually it will be able to explain it. But, uh, you know, that doesn't preclude us from observing the effects of something. And that's all a scientific law is, is an observation of the statistical likelihood that something will occur again that occurred in the past based on the past probabilities. So we have a law of gravity that does not mean that we understand gravity, nor does it mean we understand a lot of things. We just give it a name and a use. I think uh, Dr. Stein takes the blind chance position on the universe that all the seeming purpose or order can be explained simply in terms of natural laws without uh, any other basis. Now what you need to remember is that appealing to natural laws in this way only begs the question. Uh, for one thing, how can you have impersonal laws and yet have a very purposed order in the universe? How can you just have uh, uh, laws uh, uh, observing purpose and order in the universe, uh, saying that laws just of themselves are self-justifying and self-validating. That is begging the question in this way. What Dr. Stein is really saying is that things exist with order because we have laws. Well, why do, why do we have laws? Well, because I can observe things exist with order. I can, I can observe it so many times and uh, I can predict then what it's going to do. Well, then why can you observe it? Well, because of laws. Well, why do we have laws? Well, because because I can I can observe it. You see you see the nature of the circular reasoning in that, where really he has no explanation for how it could exist in an atheist worldview, where what you would predict is disorder and not having laws. Uh, the next question is addressed to Reverend Shelby. If God wanted a world, when did He decide to create it? Upon his immediate existence, when he got lonely, how long did it take him to postulate the question? When he created it, in terms of the scientific evidence, was between uh, 8 and 20 billion years ago. And I think probably the more correct one is uh, closer to the lower one. But that's what the scientific evidence says. Now, I think the question has to do more with how long did he wait before he created it. And again... The problem with that question is that you're, you are looking at God who stands outside and above our time-space continuum. There's, there's no time with God. So there's no way to ask the question or answer the question logically if you're dealing with God according to the definition that Dr. Stein and I have both accepted. Because within that definition, God is someone who stands outside of, he's personal, he stands outside of the universe, he also created it. But you know, he created it before time started. It wasn't here until he created it, and then there was time. It was time at the moment that he started, so how long did he wait before he created it? That's, that's one of those, that's one of those uh, 
uh, things that you just you can't get at because uh, you're running up against the definition of God when you do that. And if God is going to be God, then He's going to stand outside of all of that, and uh, that question doesn't doesn't have the same meaning. You see what I'm saying? In other words, how long did God wait before He created the universe can't be answered because there wasn't time with God. Uh, because he stands outside of the time-space continuum and created the whole thing. Created time as well as matter. Um, so, uh, now that's according to the God that the Bible presents. And that is logically consistent, that is scientifically consistent with what we, what we observe now, because when we, when we go back in terms of uh, uh, the observable uh, evidence uh, in the universe, and we take it back to its logical con conclusion, you see that uh, the universe had a beginning and had a beginning from nothing. Another uh, statement that I was going to read in connection with that, uh, Sir Arthur Eddington made the statement, and, and uh, Dr. Stein had criticized him. Some of the people I quoted from may have been astronomers back in the 20s and 30s, Actually, I quoted quite a few very recent people. But uh, Arthur Eddington stated, Religion first became possible for a reasonable man of science in the year 1927. I would say clearly Dr. Stein is behind the times if he's a reasonable man, behind the scientific times, because it was in 1927 that they uh, observed and recorded Hubble's law uh, about the galaxies retreating from us in proportion to how far away they are, uh, showing that if you take it back, there had to have been a beginning of the universe in space and time. Of course, I accept the, the red shift idea of the Hubble thing. That has nothing to do with, with what we're talking about. Obviously, the universe is expanding. I'm not disputing that the slightest. So uh, that's all red herring that he's raising that I don't accept that. I do accept it. And Arthur Eddington, of course, was back in the 20s. This is what I said. But anyway, uh, the, the statement about God is outside of time and space continuum is an absolutely mind-boggling statement. Nothing can be outside of time and space and have any connection with human beings. If, if God is outside of time and space, then we cannot communicate with God. Either if you want us to communicate with God, then he has to be inside of time and space. Otherwise, when you think about it, what does it mean to be outside of time and space? It means to be completely outside the universe. Outside of the, the, the physical and uh, visible and uh, logical concept of the universe. I can't explain it any other way, but I do agree with, with um, Reverend Shelby that if until the universe existed, there was no time. That doesn't make any sense to have the concept of time until the universe existed, but that's not the same thing as being God being outside of time and space. Okay, the next question is for both speakers, and Dr. Stein will answer first. Uh, where would you go and spend eternity if you were to die tonight? Please explain. Well, the question has no meaning to me because I don't think you'd go anywhere. And that's the answer, to nowhere. You'd, you'd, your, your body would disintegrate into chemicals into the earth or wherever it was, and your, your uh, personality would disappear, uh, and you would live on the memory of, of other people. That's the, that's the real immortality. You know, write a book, or invent something, or uh, have a family that uh, remembers you. That's the only real immortality there is, which is not a bad kind of immortality. Uh, but, uh, you know, the answer is nowhere. I think uh, this question is, is once again good to point out the 
bankruptcy of the atheist position because what Dr. Stein is really saying is that he would go to the same place that he will not admit that God is able to exist at. In other words, remember when we were talking about God and my statement that he existed outside of the space-time continuum and uh, he said, well, how can you even conceive of that? Well, then how can you conceive of what happens after death? The answer is you can't, but yet you know, yet you know that you die, something happens with you. You may not believe in a conscious existence. Maybe you say that it just, you die like a dog and it just goes into nothing. Uh, but, but still, you're gone. Every person in this room tonight, there's a self-knowledge you have of yourself. And in your heart, what you're believing is that if anybody ought to live forever, I would be. If anybody should live forever, I should. I mean, nobody's done it yet, and they didn't discover the fountain of youth down there in Florida like they thought they were going to, but if anybody should discover it, I should, and I should live forever. Why? Because you know in your heart and in your mind, there's that self-consciousness that you have of yourself that says, this wasn't for nothing. It can't just go off like, it can't be like a candle that you snuff out. There's some place that you go, there's something that goes on. That's why, by and large, people in the world are not atheists. It, it, it's not, it does not ring true with ourselves. Not at all. And they will almost grasp anything to keep from that vacuum of believing nothing. But yet, there is some place that you go that you know in yourself that it's not just cut off. If anybody should live forever, you should. And that's not just wishful thinking. You know that from inside of yourself. And uh, the answer for me... Uh, uh, I can give unequivocally because, again, it's based not on wishful thinking but on what the Bible says about what happens after death and based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his blood shed for my sins, uh, I would go to be with God in his presence. Okay, the next question is addressed to Dr. Stein. What will you do if and when you stand before a God that requires an answer for your rejection of his existence truth? <laughs> well, if that ever were to happen, and I think the chances are almost zero of it happening, but if it were to happen, I would admit I was wrong. And I would say, as Bertrand Russell said, when asked exactly that question, he said, you didn't give us enough evidence. And that's exactly what I would say. You didn't give human beings enough evidence that was logically valid and supportable that you existed and if you wanted to it would be real easy to do so all you do is put an appearance somewhere you know once in a while and that would all be all it would take if God wanted you to believe in him 100% want every person to believe in him fully all you do is put it in appearance in a few places and show that he's around uh, you're certainly not doing that and uh, if you think you're going to build a pipeline to God then, uh, you know I can recommend a good uh, place for you to go, uh, get some help, but, uh, you know, no, I'm serious, I didn't mean it that nasty way, but I'm saying, it, 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 in order for you to have evidence that God speaks to you, it has to be demonstrable in more ways than just that you hear it in your head, you have to show other people that that voice is going on there and what it's saying, and that's real hard to do, it's more of a personal experience one-on-one, and if it is, then it has no validation as being true, other than hallucinatory, I'm saying, you can't distinguish it from hallucination, unless you can demonstrate it to someone other than yourself hearing it in your head. Now, if you, I'm not saying you can't do that. I mean, you should be able to, if it really is a true voice you're hearing. There should be some way of recording that or showing other people that, what that content is of that. And if you can't, then it's still indistinguishable from a hallucination. And, you know, I don't know if that adds any, any evidence to the existence of God. 
Uh, I do want to add one thing. Uh, it does take strength of character to be an atheist, but not everyone can be one. And if you can't be, then don't feel you, you can't be, that's fine. But if you do feel you have the strength of character and a reality-based uh, desire, then maybe you're going to try it. I would not say it takes strength of character to be an atheist. Uh, when I read Bertrand Russell's uh, statement that that's what he would say when he appeared before God, I did not think that that was a statement of strength of character. I thought it was uh, uh, rather uh, absurd, very absurd, because tonight we've given you evidence. We've given you more evidence than you can write down and digest in one evening. So to stand before God and to say, well, you didn't give me enough evidence... You will have to explain how in your lifetime, NASA spent $60 million searching for extraterrestrial intelligence, and they knew what they were looking for because they're looking for an encoded message which nature, by random laws, cannot duplicate, which nature cannot duplicate by chance. And in your lifetime, they were looking for that, and yet you sat here tonight and you heard all these things about DNA and protein and just... The carbon-12 having the right harmonic resonance and all these other things, and you still sat here and uh, and uh, chose to disbelieve it. I think that you'll have to explain a lot, a lot more than that to God. The next question is for Reverend Shelby. Given the vast number of holy books and the vast number of gods portrayed, how do you pick one? Uh, the way that you pick one, and again, I made this statement before, just because there's a multiplicity of, uh, of uh, religions or of religious writings doesn't mean that there's not one correct one, and secondly, it does not mean that you cannot find it. So you do need to search for something that is logically coherent. And this is where all of the other major religions fail. They are incoherent logically within themselves, because uh, just like the problem you have with the uh, eternally rebounding Big Bang Theory, it's a static universe that is not supported by the evidence scientifically. And even when you get behind it, it's still, it has to start someplace. To say it was always there forever, and just to say it was always there forever, and just to say that, and just to make that statement when there's, when there's nothing else you can point to, there's no law in the universe that say, well, you know, this, is, this shows, this is how we know this. Just to make that statement is faith in the worst sense of the word, which is exactly the definition that Dr. Stein, you notice how our definitions of faith totally disagreed tonight, and yet he accepts in his own life something by that same definition, which is that the universe just always was. I don't have to say why it always was, I don't have to get, it just, it was just always there. All the other major religions either take that position, like Buddhism, which I mentioned, uh, Shintoism, Taoism, uh, religions like that that have the continuous reincarnation, or have God being nirvana or karma or something impersonal. Here's the problem. It's logically inconsistent. You've got an ordered, purposeful universe. And yet you're not going to have an ordered, purposeful God. You're going to say, you're going to say that you have more personality than you're going to allow God to have. And it just, it doesn't make sense. Or on the other hand, you've got uh, other uh, religious uh, writings that, uh, again, have logical inconsistencies. In them. And I know that Dr. Stein and others of you in here would say, well, I believe I found those in the Bible. Well, let's have another debate sometime. Okay, of course it's correct that uh, the fact that there's a multiplicity of religions 
doesn't mean that one isn't correct. It also doesn't mean that one is correct. It could all be wrong. You could have, in fact, I've heard the, the definition of an atheist. Uh, one a famous atheist was asked, what, what is the difference between you and a theist? He said, the theist believes that 99 out of the 100 gods that are postulated are false. I just believe that one more is false. All hundred of them. So, I mean, you know, you are indeed, it's quite just as possible that the hundred are all wrong, the hundred religions are all wrong, as it is that 99 are wrong, and one is right. In fact, it's probably more reasonable to believe that they're all wrong. Here's the problem with what Reverend Shelby said. God is always there, always has been there, he's eternal. Okay? And he's violating his own thing that every cause must have an effect. Every, uh, I mean, every effect must have a cause. Um, if every effect must have a cause, then there's no such thing as an eternal thing, if that's the case. Now, if God is the exception, well, you know, as I said, the universe can be an exception too. I don't have any faith that the universe is eternal. I just say that this is an explanation which is logically consistent with the evidence, much of the evidence, and could be correct. I'm not, I don't believe it's so, in the sense that I'm willing to say it's a fact. It's not a fact. It's just an ex a hypothesis or a theory, a tested, possibly tested hypothesis, that, that explains things without the need for there to be a God and, and makes sense out of the world. It doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't mean I believe that it's true. I just happen to think that it's quite possible that it might be true. The next question is addressed to both speakers, and uh, Reverend Shelby will answer first. Um, at what point in your life did you either accept, reject, or suppress, um, or believe in the knowledge of God and become an atheist or a Christian? And why did you do this? Because you feel your atheistic or religious theory was correct, or was it simply convenient? I think that uh, every person grows up knowing from, again, as I mentioned before, that self-knowledge in themselves that there is a God and that there's someone higher than them and they pretty much have to be educated out of it. Or come to a point in their life where, uh, as I mentioned before, they want to be able to admit uh, an, an order and a validity to science and to logic, but not to morals. And so they have to have a place to hide. And so they'll hide out in agnosticism or in atheism. Uh, uh, it was when I was 11 years old that, uh, uh, you know, I think we all reached that, that age in our life where we know right from wrong. We begin to learn right from wrong, and immediately we're faced with a choice. And since we know innately, not from consensus, not from sociology, not even from our parents, we know innately certain things were wrong for us to do, certain things were right. We have a conscience, and that conscience has a function within us, and uh, we know that, and uh, we do things that we know are wrong by anybody's definition. And we start to say, you know, there's some problems with this. God starts dealing with us on that. And uh, uh, for me, it was uh, at that age, and uh, I think the most striking thing to me is that probably that was about the first time in my life I ever attended a funeral. And uh, it hit me at, uh, at that moment that one day it would be me in that casket. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, and then to hear the truth of the gospel and compare it 
logically and rationally and reasonably and look at it scientifically and see how it all lines up. Uh, it had the ring of truth, and I, I knew the truth then when I took it. Dr. Stein. Well, I grew up in a, in a Unitarian family, and we, we basically had a very little uh, dogma, and I didn't really have an opinion about the existence of God or any real uh, conclusion that I'd reached until I got to graduate school, and then I sort of went through a period when I decided I was going to straighten out my beliefs on religion once and for all by examining all the evidence in as objective a way as I could. I read a lot of Christian apologetics, I read philosophers, I read atheist literature, I just tried to look at all the arguments the existence of God that, that, that have been offered. And I came out with a conclusion, not proven basically, that there was no conclusive evidence that proved to me that there was a God. And so I remain open to any proofs that anyone can offer them, but I haven't seen yet. I've been a long time since I've heard a new one, but I'm sure someone come up with a new one that I haven't seen. But I do read the literature uh, religiously, if you want to call it that, and uh, I uh, still haven't seen any good ones. I, I mean, there's a, an argument we haven't even gotten into here about, for example, Alvin Plantinga uh, says that basically God is a thing that's so, uh, so uh, basic that it doesn't need any proof. Well, you know, I can say atheism is something that's so obvious and, and, and uh, the evidence is all around you that there's no God. I'll look at it that way, I haven't seen the evidence for it. So, I mean, that's maybe a basic thing that doesn't need any proof. So, I mean, this is a stupid argument is what I'm getting at. And yet, philosophers have, have actually, theologians have rallied to him, to his position, and said, hey, that's a great new argument. It's a lousy argument. It just begs the question. It says, we don't need any proof, because we can't come up with any. <laughs> so, we won't offer any, we don't need any. Um, anyway, that's the answer to when I became an atheist. Uh, the next question is for Dr. Stein. You disputed faith without seeing because of, quote, a lack of evidence. However, you said you could not see a black hole, but believed the black holes exist because of the evidence. Please explain. Well, the evidence is not seeing the black holes. You have to distinguish between physically observing the black hole, which we can't do, but we can see what happens to light and how it's sucked into this area disappears, never comes out again. We can see other things that, that are, uh, behave in a way that indicates they've been sucked into some kind of a, abyss, if you want to call it that, from which there is no exit. And that conforms to the mathematical model of a black hole. So even though we can't see the black hole, we see the evidence of things being affected by the black hole, which is second-hand evidence, but it's, it's, it's pretty good considering how far away it is. I think the things that Dr. Stein was saying are really uh, the proof of my position in terms of uh, in terms of why there's a God and uh, the black hole. No light can escape the event horizon of the black hole. Right, the infinite gravity such that all of it is sucked in. That means you're never going to observe physically a black hole. You can't, because light can't escape it, so you just can't see it. But what you can see in the universe are things that are unexplainable without black hole, right? You can see other light being, you can, gravitational properties, and all that again gets into uh, quantum mechanics, Einstein's uh, uh, equations and things like that. But you can see, you can see things that say, well, the only thing that could cause that would be 
be a black hole, which has exactly been the thesis of my argument and the basis of my argument tonight was giving you all of the evidence, since you can't look at God face to face because God is a spirit, all of the evidence so you can say, you know, the only explanation, there's no explanation for that outside of God, there's God. The next question is directed to Reverend Shelby. If God is a perfect being, why wouldn't the universe be perfect? Why, even though we don't lose energy, would it dissipate if God is perfect? Uh, the answer is that some things that God created initially were created perfect. That doesn't mean that they have to be perfect today. So the fact that they're not perfect today uh, does not mean that God is not perfect. It means he simply allowed them to come into an imperfect state. But again, we're back to the question, that, uh, back to the issue that if everything were red, you would lose the definition of what red is. Uh, God is perfect. And uh, for him to allow imperfection in the same way for him to allow evil... Uh, is simply a way for you to discover who he is. And again, the question is not, well, why did God allow imperfection? The issue tonight for you personally is the fact that God offers you escape from the imperfection. God has made a plan to get you out of the imperfection. God has offered uh, the good news of the gospel that gets you into an ultimate state of perfection. And, uh, you know, uh, all of this it makes no sense to you. Uh, and you say, well, it's not logically consistent, it can't be done, because again, we're back to the thing that if everything must have a cause, then God must have a cause. But now hold it. You know, every cause must have an effect. God only needs a, a cause if he is an effect. He's not an effect. God is not an effect, therefore, he does not need a cause, because that's what that's part of the basic definition of God. It's like trying to uh, observe a black hole. It's like saying that, well, you know, I will believe in black holes until I see one. Well, you never see one. But you can still observe the pointers that point to him. And, you know, the really remarkable thing is that even in spite of all the imperfection that you can point out in the universe, in the world, in your life maybe, all of the disorder and disorganization and other things, you know that everything that is ordered in your life is ordered because there was an intelligence that went in there, whether it is your room, your locker, your notebooks, the way you approach this semester, the way you approach your studies, or anything else. If it has order, it's because there was an intelligence which went in and ordered it. And yes, there is an imperfect universe out there that, that allows you to see who God is. But the really amazing thing is that despite the fact that there's an imperfect universe out there, there's enough perfection that you can be assured that you can measure uh, uh, the details down to the point that you know that there's no other explanation for the beginning of things outside of God. Scientifically, you can measure it down to where you have to say that there still had to be a beginning of, to things, and despite the imperfection, I can measure that closely that I know that, uh, uh, that it could not exist without a creator. Well, if God is perfect, as Robert Shelby said, and he created the universe in a perfect way, and now it's somehow not perfect, then this, this touches on what's called the ontological argument, which I'm not going to get into, but I'm going to tell you in just a brief that 
A perfect being cannot allow things that he created to become imperfect, or he, he, the perfect being, is not perfect anymore. He has shown a flaw, or a lapse, or a gap, or a limitation, if you want to call it that. And that is to allow imperfection in his own creation. This is a complicated argument. This, basically, I think, logically it makes sense that if you were going to say that, 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 that God is perfect, that his creation is perfect, because only a perfect, a perfect creation can be made by a perfect being, then for him to allow it to become imperfect means that he's not perfect. Because he's now flawed, he's now limited, he's now not allowing perfection to occur. To say that God is not in effect is, a, is, a, is just as meaningful a statement as to say the universe is not in effect. If you want to call it that, if the universe is eternal, if God is eternal and therefore it's not in effect, that God is not in effect, then the universe is not in effect. So that doesn't help any. I mean, we're both back to the same point of either God or the universe is eternal. We know the universe exists, we don't know whether God exists. So. I think the universe is a better guess if you want to take a better choice if you want to take one or the other. Uh, the next question is addressed to the both speakers and will be answered first by Dr. Stein. And let me sort of preface it. It's based upon my hearing of the debate, uh, Reverend Shelby, you've argued that um, the ordered nature of the universe is evidence for the existence of God. And Dr. Stein has argued that um, it would be greater proof for the existence of God for strange things that were unpredictable to happen in the universe. And so this person asks to both, are either of you familiar with chaos theory, which postulates that chaotic systems, when viewed on a grand scale, exhibit complex patterns? Please address. Uh, yes, I, I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with chaos theory. I'm no expert on it. I think it's just another attempt to how explain this, to inject irrationality into the rational. By that I mean, why bother? Uh, you know, things are not chaotic on a, on a uh, subatomic level. They are maybe unpredictable. That's different from unchaotic. They be, particles behave in a uniform kind of way. And that's how we can identify, you know, when an atom breaks up, we can identify the various subparticles, subatomic particles, by the way they behave. Now, why do they, why can we do that? Because they behave in a consistent way. A, a meson behaves in a certain way, makes a certain kind of pattern, it's attracted or not attracted in a certain way, it's a certain size, and certain, certain things. I mean, these are maybe constructs that human beings use, and they may not represent absolute reality, but nevertheless, they have a predictable pattern, and that pattern uh, is, is a kind of a uniform thing. So, why make it into, why say that there's chaos? To me, the word chaos is a loaded word, it implies absolute randomness and absolute non-predictability, and I don't think that's the case at all. Now, it could be that certain systems that look like they're chaotic on a micro level, on a macro level, may exhibit some kind of apparent order, but why postulate that when it isn't the case? That's what would be necessary. Chaotic systems show grander patterns. Okay, let's use that, let's apply that maybe to answer the previous question that we had and we were dealing with. Because I don't think that's a totally invalid concept. Uh, but now we've got to settle something else first. Either God is eternal or the universe is eternal, which is, well, we know that the universe is not eternal. That is not a scientific statement. We've showed you that tonight. Not only astrophysicists from the 20s and 30s, but modern physicists from today, the universe is an effect. They know it is an effect of something caused it. They know it's an effect. They know it's not eternal, 
Even if you have many big, big bangs, you don't have more than 100 of them. You just, from the laws, the things we can measure, we know there's how much of it's out there, we can get back to the root of it. The universe is an effect. The universe is not eternal. And you can define God however you want to. But if the universe is an effect, something caused it. God caused it. God is not an effect. That's just part of the definition. But now, after we've got that, the question comes, but then if he's a perfect God, if he either creates or allows imperfection, then he must not be perfect. Well, but now hold it. You've totally taken the time factor out of it. What if God, in order to prove his God, he is God, just like we talked about, if everything's red, you lose the meaning of the color red. If God, in order to prove he is God, creates a time-space continuum where cho choices can be made, and therefore imperfection can be made, and therefore evil uh, uh, can exist. If God creates a time-space continuum where that happens, and then makes a way out of it, in other words, through the chaos, there's a, if there's a grander pattern at the end, is he not still God, even though imperfection exists in the universe? The answer is yes, he is. The next question is for Dr. Stein. Have you ever seen, felt, heard, smelled your own consciousness? If not, how do you know you have one? Oh, this goes back to the old question about the hum and the motor, as I said before. Consciousness, again, is fine, the brain is working. And it's like the hum and the motor, which you can't find anywhere by taking the motor apart, but it's still there. Uh, how do I know that consciousness occurs? All I have is my own perception of it, my sense organs, if you want to call them that, tell me that I'm receiving something. And when I come unconscious, I'm not receiving something. So all I have is my own self-verification system of my senses to tell me that. Now, it could very well be that my senses are fooling me. Now, I really am, I have no consciousness, but you know, I would entertain evidence of that if you want to offer any. It seems to be the evidence runs the opposite direction. Because we both agree that we both see something in a particular place and then we don't see it over here. You know, it seems to be consensus among human consciousnesses of different people that, that something is being perceived by both of us. So there's some self cross validation in that way. Since we uh, seem to be opening the game up to the previous questions, I want to say one other thing about the previous question here. Is God, is the statement that God is eternal a scientific statement? Absolutely not. So, I mean, you're not making a scientific statement either, if you want to call the statement that the universe is eternal a scientific statement. It's a lot more, mine is a lot more scientific than yours is. Yours is certainly not scientific. And, just, and again, the explanation that God caused the universe is not an explanation. It's just putting a name on the, on the statement, on the process. It doesn't explain how God created the universe. Therefore, it is not an explanation because it doesn't explain it. So he has not, not only has he not given us an explanation, he has hidden the fact by claiming that he's giving us an explanation, but he blatantly has not given us an explanation. Just put a term on it. You know, God did it. How did he do it? That's the explanation. Well, I would say in terms of how he did it, I gave you tonight in spades how he did it. So the function, the mechanism, has been very clearly uh, described. And to say God's eternal is very scientific because we know that the universe is not. And yet it has to have an explanation for an existence. It has to have a creator for it. And, uh, you know, it, again, it gets back to how you want to define your God, how big you want to make your God. 
as far as what you want to believe. But what I think the question, the person's question was getting to was that if you know you have a consciousness and a conscious existence, but you don't know that, in other words, you know you have a mind, but you don't know that because you've ever smelt it, saw it, tasted it, looked at it, you know, you don't use sensory experience, and yet you know that there is something that exists there, a soul, apart from being able to put it in a test tube. Now, since we know that it exists, and well, what Dr. Stein is saying, and I can't tell how to, how we know it exists, I just know it's there because I know it's there, then I think probably the, the question writer's point is the same thing is true of God. Uh, the next question is for the Reverend Shelby, and actually a lot of people might have wanted this question answered before the Cowboys beat up on Steelers last weekend. <laughs> but how would you explain the process of prayer in the example of sports teams? Meaning, if both teams pray to God, how does he choose a winner? <laughs> Because we don't know who the Steelers fans are in this room. So I think that's a good you know, question upon which uh, some discretion probably is advised. Uh, but it's a good question in terms of, of prayer to God because, uh, you know, the Bible defines very clearly a God who stands outside of the universe, God is spirit, and yet he has his mechanisms to plug into that universe in terms of the socket to plug into to have interaction with us and does God use natural means to make that interaction that's fine I, I don't care if you want to say that in terms of the miracles of the Bible that there's a natural explanation for everyone God may very well have used natural means at his disposal to accomplish whatever he wanted to do but that does not mean that God is uh, that God does not hear your prayer or cannot hear your prayer or this uh, fatalism that was defined tonight. That's not my position. I do not take that position of fatalism uh, with regard to what the Bible teaches about God, because it's not that way. God, because He is who He is, and because He can make a rock so big that He can't move it, and because He is the only one that can make a, uh, a square round, uh, God is able to plug into, the, into your life in such a way that by his foreknowledge, he, he knows what's going to happen. At the same time, you have the freedom uh, to make choices. You also have the ability to pray and to see him work and him to give you an answer, either yes, no, or wait, uh, to anything that you might say to him. And you have, uh, once you accept his propositions, you have the power to inject him into your universe and inject him into your life and see him work on your behalf and you know this is true not only because he works out here in the realm that you can you can see physically but you know it's true uh, with an inner witness inside yourself and now you finally got one unifying philosophy uh, for everything that you see in the universe so uh, it's a good question I cannot speak to uh, whether God was on the side of the uh, you know, the uh, Cowboys more than the Steelers, but uh, since the Cowboys won, I guess, you know, what can you say? Uh, although, you know, again, like we said before, that doesn't mean that maybe letting Steelers, you know, the Cowboys win this year because uh, next year they're going to lose real bad or something. But, uh, you know, that's, I think that's a, a, a funny and a humorous way 
to ask a more serious topic. The question about God and the Super Bowl is really a very simple one. I have inside information that God is actually from Dallas. <laughs> that explains what happened. Now, no, no, I'm just being serious. But the point that uh, I want to raise one issue about this can God make a rock so maybe he can't move it? Uh, Reverend Schultz is clearly wrong about this because we know from logic that a logically self contradictory thing cannot be true, it cannot be done, it cannot exist. It can't, you can't have a square circle. It's either square or it's a circle. The two concepts are contradictory to each other. So the statement, can God make a rock so that he can't move it, leads us to a logical self-contradiction. There's no such thing for an omnipotent person to be have some, make something, be able to create something that he can't move, because then he would not be omnipotent. You know, the whole thing is self-contradiction. So the answer is clearly, neither God nor anyone else can make a rock bigger than that he can move. So the opposite answer, logically, is true to what he said, to what he said. All right, the next question, I think we'll make it our final question, is addressed to both speakers. Um, but again, both speakers have agreed to stay around for a few minutes if you want to come up and speak to them personally. And again, we'd like to thank you for attending. Uh, you've been a marvelous audience, and um, we'd, we'd like to thank you. The final question, and we'll begin with Reverend Shelby. What happened to the body of the historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, following his crucifixion and burial? He was resurrected after three days. That's the short answer. What happened to the body, though? The body. What happened to the body? I went uh, to sit on the right hand of God. So that's the short answer. Now, I think in terms of, you know, obviously, you sit out there and say, well, a resurrection has never happened in my experience. Again, it's another one of those things that you cannot prove scientifically. It's not repeatable. It's not like a law. It's not something we've seen. We cannot give evidence to it. That's somebody's opinion. It was written a long time ago. It was probably changed by a uh, myriad number of scholars and how can we really trust in it? Da 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 da. Well, bottom line is, you're going to have to trust in something because uh, it's here with no other explanation than God, and there's no scientific one that's given for how it came about. So uh, uh, there, uh, you know, uh, I think among the explanations that an atheist would normally accept for the existence of God, one of them would be if he put it in, in, in appearance, and he has put in an appearance. And so some of the things that we've said tonight are not logically uh, self-contradictory, they are super-logical, and I thank Dr. Stein, hopes you don't know that much about logic, so that you're not going to check this out, but even within the realms of logic that are discussed in your classrooms here at KU, they will talk about super-logical things, or things that are true, but exist outside of the realm of logic, and if you don't allow your definition of God and your God to have that same option, then you have simply set up your experiment ahead of time to get the results that you wanted in the end. Well, what I said uh, to Reverend Shelby is was quoting what I said. I said that one thing that would convince me is that God put in an appearance here in front of me, not 2,000 years ago when I wasn't there. So that, that's an entirely different thing. I don't know whether he put in an appearance that... Uh, I don't know whether Jesus ever existed. All I know is that outside of the New Testament, there is zero, zero evidence that Jesus ever existed. That doesn't mean that there isn't evidence in the New Testament. Of course there is. The 
question is, how good is the New Testament as a historical document? This is another debate entirely, of course, but I'll just, since I have two minutes here, I'm just going to say that uh, the New Testament is not what a historian would call a primary source document. We do not have any copies of the New Testament from before 350 AD, real chunks of it, a little tiny pieces of, you know, this big, but a little bit earlier version. But that would be like getting our Revolutionary War history from a 1950s book. Um, did the Revolutionary War occur in 1776 or not? Sure, I think it did. But we have primary source documents dating from that period. If we had only stuff dating from the 1950s and nothing before that, we'd get the scratch our heads and say, how do we know that that really happened then? I'm talking about any evidence whatsoever. There isn't. So, you know, if you want to accept the New Testament as historical evidence, go right ahead. Most historians would not accept it as primary source evidence. And the fact that there's no supporting evidence outside the New Testament makes me wonder whether this appearance really occurred or not. And with that, we conclude tonight's debate. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Postscript. We hope that the debate was encouraging for you and enjoyable to listen to. If after listening to today's episode, you realize that you need to grow in your knowledge of God's Word and, and you'd like to grow more equipped in your ministry ability, uh, we ask that you would visit lfbi.org in order to learn more about Living Faith Bible Institute and what we have to offer in terms of training leaders, both in the work of the ministry, but also in their knowledge of the Bible and theology. We are grateful for your time, and we hope that you'll join us again next week for another episode of The Postscript. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.